VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, good morning. It's Tim Powers here with you today and tomorrow. And hopefully you'll have the uh, Royal St. John's Regatta on Wednesday. And Patty will be back after that. Good to be with you again. I hope everybody had a good weekend. As I said on Friday, last weekend of July. Can you believe that? This summer has flown by. Uh, I'm working on a theory that uh, it's going so fast, not just because I'm aging, we're aging, but also we're so much more back to normal in terms of activities and uh, the things we all had before COVID. And uh, it seems the, the pace of the summer's um, graduation just keeps going. Now, a lot of things to talk about this morning and happy to talk about your weekend too mine was good I had a lot of time with my son we did a lot of fun activities we played some soccer we played some games we overcame the uh the torrential downfalls and the downpours and hailstones that uh, besieged ottawa which is where i am today but it was quality family time and you can't ask for anything more i know many of us value that watched a lot of soccer and let me start there so again same um, same qualifier i had with ben and jerry lynn if suddenly i make uh, a loud noise um, and of course i won't swear but it's because i still have the canada australia soccer game on it is as brian said three nothing for australia there are about 21 minutes left so a big hill for the canadians to climb they have to tie the game to move to the next round it's not impossible but it's tough. They've changed their keeper. They're uh, constantly on offense right now. The Aussie keeper just made a fantastic save off of her foot. Uh, but the Australians who are playing at home uh, have been been dominant. So we'll keep watching that game and let you know what it uh, ends up at. Uh, have to say, I've been watching throughout the weekend, and there have been some crackerjack games. I saw Colombia and Germany. Big upset yesterday. The Colombians beat the Germans. I mean, it is captifying. Captifying, uh, And I say to you, if you haven't checked it out, check it out. It's as good as any other sport you're going to watch on TV and better. And we're finally getting to a place in these discussions where we don't gender demarcate and say, oh, we can't watch that because it's women's sports. We just watch because it's good. And that's the way it should be. Later on this morning, because I want to pick up this theme of, of equity and sport, women's sports on television and the state of the national sports system because it's the summer and a lot of families are deeply involved in sports and watching sports and and hearing about sports i'm going to have the incoming president of hockey canada kathy henderson who still remains right now until the end of august the president of curling canada on kathy has been on the program before kathy is somebody who spent a lot of time uh, negotiating television deals marketing deals to tell the story of and have women benefit benefit from their own sports. We'll also talk to her a little bit about, um, bearing in mind she hasn't started at Hockey Canada, what she hopes to achieve there, because I know there are a lot of parents here who are hockey parents, uh, as is Kathy Henderson. So we'll have a little chat with Kathy about her hopes and aspirations there, as well as looking at equity in sport um, and the ever-growing financial power of female sports, as that should be the case. And of course, just uh, Friday afternoon, there was a temporary agreement reached between 
uh, sport, uh, excuse me, the Canadian Soccer Association and the women's team on uh, equity, uh, pay equity uh, as it related to prize money in this tournament. But so much more to be done there. And anything else you want to talk about in that realm of sport, happy to chat about. Love an update, by the way, on how that Paradise Soccer Tournament went. Uh, it was a big, big, big one. Um, we look forward to hearing that. And of course, it's it's regatta season. We just had the 161st Harbor Grace Regatta. You heard Pam Parsons talk about that. If you participated or were there and want to give us a call on that, do so. The Royal St. John's Regatta, hopefully on Wednesday, weather dependent. So anything within the realm of all of that, I want to talk to you about today. It's hard not to be moved by uh, the story of young Ben Olivero. Now, if you're just tuning in, you will um, you will not necessarily know, but if you can go to our website, that Ben Olivero passed away this weekend in St. John's. He was only 20 years old. His mom, Tina Olivero, courageously shared the story of Ben's challenges with Brian Callahan and, and Ben's life with uh, Brian Callahan early, earlier today. Ben had suffered from addiction. Uh, he died on, uh, uh, on the weekend. Uh, he was found by a bench. He had overdosed. His mother is sharing that information, so we're not breaching any privacy rules. He'd, uh, I believe the story was he'd, uh, he'd taken some cocaine that had likely been laced with fentanyl and became another casualty of overdosing and a victim of addictions. Um, hearing Tina talk, and I met Tina years ago, our paths overlapped in politics about her son was just heartbreaking. Uh, any of us who are parents, any of us who understand addiction, any of us who know people who uh, struggle with addiction, and I'm pretty sure we all do, cannot but be heartbroken over the loss of this beautiful 20-year-old boy. Look at some of the pictures that uh, have been shared on our website and and how his, his life ended. But as his mother pointed out, he may be at, at rest and at peace now um, because the addictions no longer have a hold of him. I, I know we talk about this a lot, mental health and addictions, but we need to keep talking about it because, as I think um, was said in the story, it's a scourge. It's a scourge on our society. People are dying. People are struggling. Uh, we're trying to help as best we can, but boy, do we need to, to kick up the effort. And yes, there's lots of things out there, but when a 20-year-old boy, 20-year-old man dies, and many other young people have died because of this, you can't but think, wow, what does that mean what does that say about our society what do we need to do here we're going to try and get somebody on uh to talk about what addictions really are and the impact that they have um i can just tell you that we have also struggled um in my world and life with addictions and the challenges around all of those things. I lost somebody very close to me who battled an alcohol addiction. Uh, I have watched people struggle with uh, addictions elsewhere. I, on occasion, have struggled to manage my own challenges with, with alcohol uh, and the like. It's just tough. It's brutal. So today, think of Ben Olivero. Think of his mother, Tina, and their family and their suffering. And think of what you maybe can do 
to help spread awareness and help people get through all of this. I'm just going to go to one other issue I want to talk about. Then I'm going to go to, to Robin Legro to, to talk about this issue because they are all linked. Crime is up. Crime is up. Uh, this was a story that dropped late Friday. Crime is up in Newfoundland and Labrador by 6%. The Canadian average is up by 4%, up from 2022, 2021. Um, in Newfoundland, it's up 21% over the last 10 years. I mean, that's concerning. There are all kinds of reasons for that, I suspect. The type of crimes being reported may vary. But uh, it's, it's something we need to take stock of and figure out what we can do to address it. And it's multi, um, a multi-pronged approach. Um, often people say more police, and yes, that can be helpful, but there's also you know, socioeconomic factors. Dare I quote the prime minister? Sometimes there's sociology that needs to solve all of this. What are your thoughts on that? How have you been impacted by it all? Uh, so much to talk about. And I want to go right to the callers because we do have somebody who can speak to the issue of crime and give a perspective on it, and that is... Uh, Robin LeGirl, I've talked to Robin before. Uh, Robin wants, is going to talk about neighborhood crime and, and overdoses and what we should be doing. Uh, Robin, kind of a tough morning with that Ben Olivero story and, of course, the story of crime. What are your thoughts on both of those issues? Well, um, crime is not what I originally called for, uh, okay. called about. I actually called last week when a woman called in about um, her trauma and how she had dealt with her trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you recall that phone call, but it was a lovely woman who talked about how she has a, a group that she's working with. And yes, uh, yeah, I did. Yes, yeah. she talked about psychedelic um, drug treatment. Yeah. Was that the, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So uh, that was, I actually called last week and, you know, whatever, I'm uh, back here now. But it's it's good timing because I really do think that there's a, well, I don't think, there's proof that there's a direct correlation between trauma and drug use. Yes. And not just trauma, um, like mental illness. And when I say mm -hmm. mental illness, I mean more than just you know, your, your depression or, you know, mm -hmm. it's people who suffer daily, who um, who may have moments of feeling better, but can, actually don't uh, recover. They develop skills to live in this world in a way that functions for them and the people around them. But, you know, it, it's, it's a daily battle. And so, it, so many things are tied together here between poverty, uh, the lack of funding and resources given to any of our care industries, okay? So when I talk about care, I'm talking about child welfare, I'm talking about mental health care, I'm talking about child care. So all these care, even education is a, is a form of care, a senior. Absolutely, yeah. Right? So all these forms of care, if you look at how we've been investing in them over the last little while, um, there's been no prevention at all. And there's been only a focus on the infrastructure that supports these industries as opposed to the work that's being done inside them. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, I would like to extend my condolences to Tina, her family, but as well Ben's friends. Um, yeah. Because, you know, in the community that he was in uh, when he passed, are a lot more bends in there. Mm -hmm. And the, not all those bends have mothers like him. Yep. And so, you know, we're hearing about Ben's death because Tina didn't allow the shame of drug use to override her love of her child. 
Yeah, Robin, can we just stop there? Because I think that's such a valuable point. I mean, you and I are of 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 a similar age and grew up in a time when if this had happened to our peer group then... Yes. There wouldn't have been the discussion about it. There wouldn't have no, been. No, they would have the, hidden it. They would have hidden it. It would have been shame. It would have been terrible on the parents. And 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 I 100% applaud you for saying that. And I applaud Tina because, God, the last thing you want to do when you have lost your child, I'm sure, is talk to the media, though Brian Callahan's a lovely fellow. So to do that, yes. and I'm sure Tina doesn't want us to make her a hero, but the, the, the point is this, as you make it so well, talking about it is addressing it and solving it. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, but I wanted to re- reinforce that point. And I appreciate that because I can talk really fast <laughs> and move on quickly. And I do agree that that is one of the main points in all of this. So to move on from that, if you look at um, you know optics and talking about things so that it's not considered shameful, we don't do that. And so no. whenever we talk about mental health and addictions, we talk about recovery. We don't talk about living with it. We don't talk about what causes us to turn to drugs. And there are so many things in this world today that, you know, uh, we're not, individuality uh, is um, not encouraged, right? No. We, We want people to fit into boxes, okay? And if they don't fit into a box, we get angry at them. Um, And so what we need to do is, you know, uh, look at people as individuals uh, with feelings and experiences and opportunities to be um, dimensional in their feelings, thoughts, and emotions. Um, And we need to start looking at the role of psychology in how we address mental health. Because if you look at the mental health approach now, There's no use of psychology whatsoever. We've completely decimated our psychology program within Eastern Health. And I, for one, um, have recently been diagnosed with some mental illness. And I went my whole life as a very privileged person Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with access with access to, you know, um, a diagnosis and therapists and doctors and everything. But I spent 30 years, you know, going through chronic pain and my own struggles with um, using substances to numb my pain. And so while I never got addicted uh, to any substance like as a true form of addiction, I did rely on them. To, to numb the pain that I felt mm-hmm. from not understanding what was happening with inside my body and why I couldn't relate to the world. And so there's so much we can be doing now that will counteract yep. mental health crises, prevention. Well, and you know what? Look, let me again echo something you said. Uh, I have spoken about it before here. I, I've, I have had a lot of mental health and wellness challenges in the past, and I hope they're mostly in the rear view. But I, I like you, uh, very lucky to come from a, a family that had some opportunity, that had some privilege. Um, like Ben Olivero, uh, have a very strong mother in particular, who uh, were it not for her tenacity and strength and encouraging me and getting me to the right people, at a time in Newfoundland and Labrador where, again, there was some shame in getting that sort of health, but making that happen uh, there, but for the grace of God, could have gone a, a very different different path. 
Um, but, you know, the circumstances, again, of a strong mother and, and leader, um, e- even as Ben had them, aren't in and of itself going to always help save some lives. Anyway, it's, it's just such a tough subject. I commend you, Robin, for coming on to talk about it. I commend you for, uh, for speaking about what you're dealing with. Are, any any word, last words you want to uh, give us before I go? Because I do have to take a break. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say that we need to demand from government preventative interventions that support people who are suffering from mental illness that don't need hospitalization. Okay, there yep. right now it's like, you know, that's your only choice. You get to the point of no return and they're even turning people away in that condition too. So, uh, let's advocate for prevention and let's look at Let's stop looking at the crime as uh, a problem that needs to be solved by punishment and more of preventing crime by not uh, forcing people to go to crime to pay for an addiction that's just keeping the pain away. That's it. They're not doing it for fun. They're doing it not to feel. And people need to understand that that is the difference now between 30 years ago with your psychedelics and your acid trips and now. It's not yeah. the same. So people need to look at it differently. Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, and fully support what you're saying. All right, got to leave it there, uh, Robin. It. Thanks for the call Thank this you. morning. Okay, bye. All right, that was Robin Legro uh, offering her perspective on addictions and the sad story of uh, Ben Olivero's death. We're going to take a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Just want to confirm we have lined up uh, Janine Hubbard, and she is going to join us in a few minutes. Um, after the break, though, we're going to switch gears briefly to talk to one of the uh, PC leadership candidates, Eugene Manning, and get his take on how the leadership race is going and, uh, and other issues of the day. Time for our first break here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. Tim Powers sitting in for Patty. It's still 3 nothing in the soccer game for Australia with Canada taking a corner kick now. It's about two minutes left. So it uh, looks like the inevitable, unfortunately, that Canada will not move forward. Uh, nonetheless, uh, pretty great uh, showing under the circumstances that they've been dealing with. Speaking of circumstances, there is a PC Party of Newfoundland and Labrador leadership race going on. One of the candidates for that leadership race is Eugene Manning, and he joins us now. Eugene, how are you? Not too bad, Tim, and yourself? I am okay. I am okay. Um, uh, The leadership race culminates in October, Eugene. I've talked to a lot of people uh, in this race, and I I think what I'm hearing is there's a lot of what I would describe as modern leadership uh, campaigning going on. You're focusing a lot of your efforts on signing up members because Lord knows if you don't do that, you don't win. A lot of direct connecting to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, hoping hoping for them to, to join your side and cast. A, a vote for you uh, when those days in October come. Uh, I've been told, Eugene, you're the front runner. Now, what's the truth? What is going on out there? How is the leadership race going? Well, Tim, uh, uh, no one wants to be too presumptuous, but yes, we've been running a, um, a very strong campaign 
We've been in this since February. We've been out on the road, to your point, thousands of kilometres, both on the island and in Labrador, all corners of the province. And uh, the difference between a leadership campaign and a general election, as you know, it's, it's not an issue of getting people to vote for you. The primary issue is getting people to vote and to sign up for that. And yeah. and we have that deadline facing us in a couple of weeks, and we're in the home stretch now. But uh, things have been going well, Tim. We've been we found our base of support. We have support within the party, and. Uh, my campaign, it's been coming from unlikely places. We have a lot of uh, young families and young people who, who look, um, what we're saying is resonating. There are things that have to be faced in this province and that. Uh, look no further than your last caller and the issue of yeah. crime. And I'd say to, not to politicize it, but I know Tina as well. And uh, if anyone gets a chance to read that post that she put up yesterday morning, was uh, it gives everyone a pause for thought onto those in leadership positions and those seeking leadership positions and, uh, and what we're really doing it for. But uh, as to the race, no, things are coming together nicely. We're, I'm hitting the road again just after I get off the phone with you. And, uh, and that's what we're up for the, for the next few weeks. Just on in the campaign, and you and I can get into mechanics for hours, but I, I, I do find it interesting because when we were growing up, and I, I'm a little older than you, the, I mean, the, the big thing about leaderships was, of course, slates and delegated conventions and all of the hoopla and, uh, and, and circumstances that came with that, earned media, trying to get your, um, your, your name out there. Um, how, you know, just tell listeners how things have changed a little bit. You saw this, I think, in the federal conservative leadership campaign. It's, it's much easier to direct market to voters uh, or, or would-be supporters. But the trade-off with that is sometimes you don't get the bigger um, public presence or public story. So why do candidates now take the route that you and Mr. Wakeham and others are doing of going directly to potential supporters? Well, Tim, they tell me I have to stay away from the mechanics of it now that I'm the candidate and not behind the scenes. But, uh, I, I, I'm sure me and you could talk about that for hours. I remember being uh, 10 or 13 on the convention floor trying to sway delegates back in the early 90s, and uh, those, were fun, those were fun times, believe me. Um, but now, look, in the media landscape we have, we have today, and Newfoundland and Labrador has a unique opportunity, actually, with, with Open Line, and there's a, a, a big crop of listeners there every morning to get your attention out. But mostly, yes, it has switched to social media, and if you're not on Facebook or Twitter or those things, then this campaign is, might be passing you by. That's a, that's a sad reality of, of the world in which we live. We've been trying very hard to get our message out there, and it, uh, but it becomes much more grassroots. And in some respects, uh, Tim, it, it, it goes back to the, not say the olden days, but mm-hmm. to the local media outlets and the local Facebook yeah. groups and, and those type of things. So in some respects, it's a completely new dynamic of campaigning, and in others, it's going back to the old ways of it. And uh, I'm a student of politics, as are you, and uh, it's interesting as you go through and you, you see what works and what doesn't work. and. Uh, whether you try door knocking for a day in Irishtown, Somerville, or or those things, you you pull out all the tricks out of the bag to uh, to try and turn out every vote you can. So, what are you hearing, Eugene, as you go around the province? I mean, last week, uh, as you know, we had the prime minister on, and what what I hear a lot about is the fuel surcharge, and admittedly a federal issue, but it impacts every politician, every person, uh, people, the cost of living, the cost of goods, all of that are, are things we pick up in public opinion polls. What are you hearing from people? What are they wanting? Uh, very similar. Look, when it comes to the carbon tax. Uh, we were out early and just points out that, for example, if I'm in St. Bride's today, a, a fresh banana is 46 kilometers away. So the carbon tax wow. is a rural tax. There's no, you can't walk that. And, uh, 
a lot of people agree with us on that, and you hear challenges. I was in Port of Bass on Thursday over to a trucking company over there, and they were saying about the difference they see. I was out and toured a, a crab plant last Monday, and they're trying to get one extra box of crab on, on every on every pallet to try and make it a go. You get down to the nitty-gritty. Um, healthcare. Look, um, you've seen announcements in recent weeks, both from our government and others, about more infrastructure. We can have all the infrastructure in the world, uh, Tim, if we don't have doctors to staff, uh, doctors and nurse practitioners and nurses and healthcare providers to staff those facilities, uh, the infrastructure is not going to cut it. And uh, coming back to your conversation with uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, and I was driving at the time, I was in Codroy Valley, and I thought you'd give him a, a fair shake. But I, I think I hear a lot that. Uh, people are sick of the government giving them back their own money and expecting a thank you for it. Um, it's it's time the government got out of the way on a lot of these things, and uh, you you eliminate the carbon tax and the fuel surcharge and those things, put more money in people's pockets, and slowly we'll start to see the issue of cost of living and groceries and all those things come down. And mostly people just want to, I won't say get back to work, but just most want is government keeps coming out with every time they see an issue they throw money at it and there are underlying problems that we need more than money to solve we need some innovative thinking we need some fresh ideas and i think that's resonating with people just a couple more questions before i let you go because i know it's a thankless job doing leadership campaigns no no glory uh, a lot of work um uh, on the issue of uh, so in the past here eugene you know it you lived it uh, you were the president of the, the the pc party here you've gone through the uh, the times when the provincial pc party and the federal conservative party were were not kissing cousins or in fact were at war with each other how is that relationship now because i do know when i was home a couple of weeks ago there was a minor controversy, if I can describe it that way, and that's not to dismiss the, the feelings of the person involved, Greg Smith, who I like, and Mr. Smith was mad at you for not being more aggressive in your condemnation of um, Pierre Polyev in a photo that had been taken, or sorry, his support of the, the bill in New Brunswick. Um, what's the relationship like, and is that rearing its head in this leadership campaign? Because specifically, I lived through the years, if you were a conservative and you supported Stephen Harper, well, you may as well not try to get a vote in Newfoundland and Labrador. How, how, how is that playing itself out now? I think well, that's very much getting behind us. I know, in, look, in the, in, the, in the back and forth of a leadership campaign, of course, anywhere where there's an area for um, opportunity or division or things like that, it, it might come to the fore. But uh, Mr. Polly, I was here for a fundraiser for our provincial party um, uh, about a month ago. Um, it was very well attended across the board from old and new guard in the party. And I, I think at the crux coming back is the question in the next election is which federal party do we think is going to do best for Newfoundland and Labrador? And is it the carbon tax and the fuel surcharge and Bill C-69 and all of these things that are limiting the opportunities that Newfoundland and Labrador has? Or is it for the federal government to get out of the way and let our develop our resources and let people attack these things and grow our economy day in, day out? And um, I think that resonates across the pro province. And I think uh, just look at the recent polls, uh, Tim, I believe that you had a party as well, um, that says that that message is really hitting home. And when that choice is clear, um, there's, there's support there for the Conservative Party. And um, coming back to myself and Greg, Greg's a good friend of mine, and uh, I've been a member of the Conservative Party, as you mentioned, since they were founded, I think, back in, 20, in 2000. So um, 
and Greg was aware of that and we have a difference of opinion right now and that's fine I'm sure we'll get through it uh, after the 15th but uh, no I think I think it's mostly behind us there's obviously some look uh, as you know in politics people have long memories so I'm sure there's always a little thing that rears, <laughs> rears its head but uh, I think we're on the other side of that and I think that um I would say the other party uh, uh, stokes that fire sometimes because they know a united, piece, a, a united progressive conservative party and their federal counterparts is, a, uh, is going to be quite the force in Newfoundland Labrador politics in the years to come. Last uh, last question. i got to give you about a minute, so slightly unfair, but you're getting used to give, <laughs> giving short answers, such as the nature of your business now. Um, so broader audience here, what do they need to know about Eugene Manning and what he would do if he were elected leader of the PC party and became premier of the province? Thanks, Tim. What people need to know is, as you mentioned, uh, I've been a backroom president of the party for a number of years. I've been involved in the party for decades. Me, myself, I'm a contractor. I'm a war filter. I've worked all over the province. Um, any job any job where you spend most of your time on the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador, 12 months of the year, uh, not every day is a good day. That doesn't, but no matter what the weather's like, you get up and you go to work anyway. That's how it get, gets done. Uh, the job doesn't have to be easy. It just has to be possible. And I think that's what I see for the future of Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, I want to go in there, and I, I want to... I don't want to uh, be wishy-washy on issues. I don't want to be on both sides. You'll know where I stand, and you'll make a clear decision, and we mightn't agree on every day. I think if we agreed every day, we'd probably have larger issues. But uh, you'll know that I'm in it for the betterment of the people in Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, I think we're on the wrong, wrong track, and I think I've vision set us on the right one. All right. Uh, you're getting good at those one-minute answers. That's part and parcel of the job. Uh, thanks for the call today, Eugene, Thank and uh, good luck to you on the leader- as the leadership campaign progresses. Thanks, Tim. If I could, just one brief little thing. Uh, I have a conflict on Wednesday evening, and uh, to wear my other hat, the Janie rowing crew, we have a squirt girls crew, I think they're nine or ten, and I'm going to miss their, uh, I might miss, I might only catch the beginning of their race on Wednesday, and I want to send them the best of luck. I know they've been putting in a good shift all summer, and uh, I'm I'm sure they're going to do us proud. Uh, There you go. Nothing wrong with uh, supporting and cheering for, uh, for any sports team. All right, Eugene, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Tim. Have a good day. Take care. All right, speaking of sports, it's over. 4 nothing In the cruel twist of fate, the Australians also got a penalty kick. Um, heartbreaking loss, but a first-class group of Canadian athletes there, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from them. And do wonder if it's Christine Sinclair's last international game. What a servant she has been for this country. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. I think I got Alex, Kitty, Jr. all in the queue there. You're up next when we get back. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Uh, welcome back. All right. It is so easy to tell there's a leadership race. So while I was talking to Eugene Manning, Dave Williams, the awesome co-pilot of this adventure, the producer of the show, got a call from somebody, um, don't know who it was, who said, I was being biased by suggesting that Eugene was the front runner. First of all, I said apparent front runner. And uh, 
my sources are pretty good and I may be wrong. Regardless, it is an opinion. Mr. Wakeham is, uh, we're searching out Tony uh, to come on whether, it doesn't matter what I think, first, second, uh, there's still a race on. And uh, I know when people get into this, picking apart a minuscule word that tells me that it's competitive. So we'll talk to Mr. Wakeham and if Tony is not happy with my description, he can tell me and uh, the, the two of them can continue to battle it out to see, in fact, who's in front. But that is the silliness of leadership races. Been there, done that, glad I don't do it much anymore. Now, going to go to line three. Junior Downey, Junior, you want to talk a little bit of catch and release around salmon, I gather. Is that right? I do, Timothy, and thank you and David for uh, putting me on, and you guys have a wonderful Monday. Well, thank you. Now, what's what's on the go with uh, with uh, with salmon the, the, so far this year? Well, Tim is mostly about the uh, water temperatures okay. and uh, catching and releasing at temperatures over eighteen degrees has shown that there is a great uh, mortality rate, and uh, we wouldn't have to be calling in here. Our our group wouldn't have to be calling in if DFO would live up to their word and ban catch and release at eighteen degrees. They ask you not to practice it at 18 degrees. The government of Newfoundland and Labrador two years ago put out a statement asking you not to catch and release over 18 degrees. They don't tell you. They ask you. And there is no clear definition of catch and release. So you can catch and release to your heart's content. And we are killing salmon. We are 50% of our rivers are in the critical zone. And SWAG right now, Salmon Watchers Assistance Group, are sounding the alarm on our Wall Atlantic salmon. So that's your group, just to be clear, because you said your group. So Sam watches assist. So two things. How how would the average fisher know it was 18 degrees or not in their particular river, other than by carrying around a thermometer? How do you how do you enforce that, Junior? Well, I'm, I'm on the. Uh, uh, Let's say uh, a website with DFO, and I've got okay. an, app, an, an app there that tells me when the rivers are are opening and closing. They don't give me okay. specific degrees, but uh, the wardens and the guardians they take temperatures just about all the time, and uh, they release it to the people on the river. And uh, you take it when the uh, climate change is here now, Timothy. Yes. So. And it's here to stay. Our waters are getting warmer. And people know when the waters are warm. Everybody mm-hmm. talks about warm water degrees. So most people know when it's over 18. And just on, just go back for that again, through that again as it relates to what is happening in these warmer waters to the salmon. There being, uh, there's a mortality rate, I think is around 50%. At, uh, let's see what the water temperatures are. There's about uh, 57% mortality rate at 23 degrees, uh, 65% mortality rate at 24 degrees, and a 70% mortality rate at 25 degrees. Now, I fish on the rivers, uh, and I fish with a, a, a suit on, uh, neoprene suit, and I can tell when the water temperatures are warm. And I took the water temperature this morning. It's just about still 20 degrees. Uh, DFO allows people to fish from 6 in the morning till 10 o'clock 
or from daylight now until 6 o'clock. Even if the water temperature the night before was 24 degrees, that water temperature is not going down below 18 the next day. So they're still allowing it. And uh, we are killing our salmon, and our salmon stocks are extremely low. And this is based on science, Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Jerry Burns did a study, a uh, three-year study, and he's into the second three years now. And uh, he, uh, he did the study. And it's shown that science right now shows that the mortality rate is high, over 18 degrees. And um, basically, we're still, we're still doing it. Junior, it's, like, it's so fascinating to me that it seems like we haven't learned um, on many species. I was a young man working for Crosby when he closed the cod fishery. And there were lots of reasons as to why those that species was, species was overfished. What is it about us as humans that we keep trying to push the envelope when we know better from lots of examples about how we do have to take a responsible approach to resource harvesting because we're humans timothy and humans <laughs> and humans yeah. love their and humans love their pleasure no matter what it is it could be anything from and i won't say but it could be anything from uh, catching and releasing salmon up to sex, if you want to put it that way. But we love our pleasures. We don't like giving it up when we're told to. And still, you know, like uh, DFFAW, every time they argue with DFO, DFO says, based on science, you can't catch cod. Right. Based on science, you can't catch capelin. Well, based on science, you shouldn't be catching and releasing, period. They should be banned. And the greatest, uh, the biggest uh, conservation group in Canada, the Atlantic Salmon Federation, they push for catch and release. They know that it's not a conservation tool. But I'm telling you, they got a lot of clout. They got a lot of money. Yeah, no, I, the ASF are a big, big force. Exactly. I've known. Yep. No, you're, you're right. All right, Junior. Thank you. Uh, anything else you want to add quickly before I go to the next call? Uh, no, we're good, Tim. Thanks again for letting me on. You and David have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks very much. Uh, that was Junior Downey talking about uh, salmon catch and release and concerns we should have. Going to go to Alex on line four, um, who wants to talk about a benefit concert for Mount Pearl Deputy Mayor Nicole Kiley. Of course, Deputy Mayor Kiley uh, was um, was in that very difficult and uh, awful accident uh, a number of months ago. I. I, I know she is recovering i've talked to some people who know her uh nonetheless uh it's it's still a tough go for her alex how is she doing uh i know she's on the road to recovery by my knowledge yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and uh so what is it you guys are are doing for her and, and who's doing or who's putting off this benefit concert well me and some of my uh musician friends are putting this off uh obviously you and Basically, everyone knows she gives a lot to the community. So, honestly, I thought it would be a good time to give back to her, right? So, give us the details and, and how people can support it. Well, it's on August 16th, 2023, and at 7 p.m. Um, tickets are $15. They'll be sold in advance. You can call 709-691-4020. And... The locations at our Queen of Families, which is formerly St. Peter's Parish, the community hall. Okay. And the money will all uh, go directly to her or you'll take some to deal with the cost. How does all of that work? Because that's often a question will, people ask. It will all be going to Nicole. Okay. Never Perfect. last penny. 
And what inspired you to do it? Because of what she does for the community? Yes, and I I did know Nicole uh, prior to this happening, and I had talked to her a bunch of times, and uh, my family and friends also knew her because I'm a citizen of Mount Pearl, so it just felt fitting to help out uh, with this with this and uh, make this concert for her. Well, that's uh, it's a very good thing to do. Uh, so again, August 15, 7.30, uh, formerly at what was called St. Peter's. Um, and tickets are how much again? Sorry, Alex. $15. $15. All right. Appreciate the call and, and well done by you. And I hope you get a big turnout. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Time for a break here. Kitty and Brenda, you will be next on VOCM's Open Line after the break. Coming up right now. Go to Kitty. Quick update for you. Um, Canada is officially eliminated from the World Cup, given that uh, Nigeria and Italy tied 0-0. Canada had to hope for a Nigerian loss of five by five goals. That did not happen. Uh, also, Janine Hubbard will be on with us tomorrow, as will Jagmeet Singh. I had suggested uh, Janine would be on now, but we can't get her until tomorrow. But uh, we will be talking to her now. Kitty, thank you. You've been you've been waiting patiently. Uh, you also want to talk a little bit about uh, the link between uh, drugs and panhandling and mental health and wellness. Go ahead. Yes, hi. Good morning, Tim. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Um, uh, this is my, I'm a first-time caller, first of all. I just want to say that. Well, you sound um, great so far, Kitty. Keep going. Okay, thank you. Um, I've been listening to the LCM uh, open line now since I've been retired, and I really enjoy it in the mornings. Great. Um, and I was listening to your preamble this morning about the poor young fellow, Benjamin, who passed away from the drug overdose. Mm-hmm. And um, also, I've been listening to the news about the fentanyl and drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, there last week, I was actually down at the pedestrian mall, and I was so overwhelmed by the number of panhandlers down there. I know they're all over the city, but it just kind of struck me because they were not all like they were at the they're at the intersections, uh, they're at the businesses, they're at the restaurants. You know, they're they're they're, 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 they're there's quite a few down at the pedestrian mall. Mm-hmm. And um, you know they're panhandling, and you know I'm I'm one to ten too. Like if I have if I do have a few coins, I kind of do. You know I'll give them a few coins or whatever. But I'm wondering now, like, is that the correct thing to do? Because we're kind of enabling them if they are, you know, uh, drug abusers or alcohol abusers. Uh, you know, are we enabling those people? Like, I just thought it was a good question to start off with, especially, you know, and I'd like to keep this conversation going, especially yes. with, you know, with the fentanyl now in the drugs and, you know, with this poor little young Benjamin gentleman passing away from a drug overdose. And, you know, I... And it might be something that you might want to ask Dr. Hubbard as well to talk about because, you know, like we tend to uh, give them, you know, we we feel for these people. Yes. And, you know, we don't want to, uh, you know, uh, see them hungry. We don't want to see them, you know, without a place to live. And and some of them might might have homes, and I'm not sure. But, like, do their money go towards these types of things? 
Yeah, Kitty, awesome points to raise, and you're, again, great job first time. I, I don't think there's a clear answer. I, I, I think, well, let me start somewhere where I, I think, you, uh, think you and I and, and many other people listening to this program would have in common. We're all, or most of us, were raised to believe you, if you can help people out, you help people out. And sometimes that uh, can mean putting your hand in the pocket to give somebody a few bucks or support a charity or whatever it takes to make a small difference. So I think our natural reaction for years had been to go in our pockets and give people who were, you know, looking for money a couple of quarters if we had them. Uh, you know, I, I am sure there, I'm not a scientist, I'm sure there are some people who are panhandling who are taking the money and you know, feeding their addiction uh, through no fault of their own. I I have seen here in Ottawa uh, people who I uh, see walking to work or used to see walking to work who were panhandling um, in the morning going into a liquor store later in the day and buying booze. Uh, maybe they needed that to survive, but it, that appeared to be what was happening with the money that was there. So I'm, I'm sure at some level uh, that this is also happening with people who are who are suffering through drug addiction, that they're 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 doing the same thing and it's a tough one morally like what do you do um what happens i mean some i've heard stories of very aggressive panhandlers so sometimes if you don't give them money will get you know physically in your face um and that can be a very intimidating circumstance there's all sorts of challenges around all of that but uh but yeah, I, I, I think we have to think about that. And it, it, it is fascinating. When I was home, I've, I've, I now see more people out on the street. And that's a comment about housing. That's a comment about social service provision, uh, perhaps a comment about rising crime rate. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, what, what, what would you do if you knew the money that you were giving to someone and that was going to them buying alcohol or drugs, would you still give it to them knowing that they're probably suffering from addiction and they're just trying to do this to survive? It's a tough moral one. What would you do? It is a very hard question. I really don't know because, you know, to me, by by feeding their addiction, are we kind of enabling them to continue on their path? I mean, wouldn't it be better if yeah. they tried to seek some kind of uh, mental health and maybe that's another question is you know there's probably not enough of that as well in our province um, so that is why they continue to do what they do but then again there's also you know the old adage that you can bring a horse to the water, water well but yeah. you can't make them drink yeah. So, except with addiction, except with addiction, I think this is what Dr. Hubbard will tell us tomorrow, except with addiction, they have to drink. That, that, that There is no ability to say, no, I can't make, I shouldn't make this choice. They're past the point of being able to make the choice. It's, it's a tough one, but I'm glad you called. I'm going to raise this specifically with Dr. Hubbard tomorrow. So you keep listening. We'll see what she says. Yes, and, and I really enjoy 
encourage more people to yes. keep this conversation going because, you know, it's it's really a hard thing to do. Like, you know, do you give them the money or do you kind of try to be a bit stronger and say no? Mm-hmm. Or by doing that, are we hurting those people more? I don't know what the answer is. And and I, I don't know either, uh, but I, I, I echo your call to keep talking about it. Thank you very much, Kitty. Appreciate your first time calling. Keep calling. Thank you so much. Take care. You have a great day. You as well. All right. Now we're going to go to line one and Brenda Kitchen, who wants to talk about wind energy projects on the southwest coast. Good morning, Brenda. How are you? Hey, good morning, Tim. I'm doing pretty good, thanks. How about you? Well, other than that, four nothing defeat. You know, I'm I am okay. I'm okay. I'm I'm healthy. I'm happy. So I don't have much to complain about. Based on today's show, that's a pretty fortunate position to be in. I agree with you 100% there. I'm calling because we have some concerns out here on the southwest coast, and it's about the wind energy companies that are coming. There's one okay. company in particular, World Energy GH2, that wants to construct five wind measurement towers in moose hunting area number nine, and they want to do this a month before moose hunting season, which is September. There's been 530 moose hunting licenses issued for that area. So anybody that's going in there to do construction, there's going to be buffers. There could be resulting in no hunting areas, no admittance signs, construction in the area of scared of moose. Like, where is the compromise? Why can't they delay the towers? There's people depending on the moose for their protein, for their fridges. There's businesses in the area that are already fully booked and depending on a successful hunting season like the outfitters, meat processors, and tourism operators. Like, if this company is allowed to proceed with the five wind measurement towers a month before moose hunting season and construction will continue during the season, we are showing that big business is being picked over Newfoundlanders and over food security. Like so, Brenda, just yeah. just on this, because I'm not as up to date on this as I should be, but are there not environmental review processes in place, both federal and provincial, that would govern what happens there? Or, or what's the status on that, to the best of your knowledge? Well, the unfortunate thing with Newfoundland and Labrador is when these companies are in the exploratory stage, there's Mm -hmm. very little required when it comes to environmental assessments. There are permits that need to be required and whatnot, but let's look at what happened over in mainland. I mean, the company went over to mainland, and they had their proper permits, but they still, you know, caused a lot of problems when it comes to the watershed area. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very hard to hold these companies accountable. Once they get into that exploratory stage, basically mm-hmm. they can do whatever they want because Newfoundland and Labrador has very poor environmental laws. So, yes, there are a lot of people out there that are thinking there definitely needs to be environmental assessments before the exploratory stage, before the five wind measurement towers are put in. There needs to be environmental assessments. But for me right now, I'm concerned about the people that are depending on that moose for food. Mm-hmm. And I'm concerned about the businesses that are already set up for a successful season depending on the moose hunting. And I don't ha- have it, Has anybody, Brenda, sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to get more of the story so I understand it. So has anybody reached out to the company to express the concerns you're expressing today? Or has the company done any uh, consultations, which is what would normally be the 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 process here have either of those things happened 
sure, I'd love to talk about World Energy GH2. They are uh, basically ignoring the residents. They went into okay. an open house in Codroy Valley, Don Hogan and Angela Gill, to speak to the residents of the area. They asked tons of questions and had a lot of concerns about the five window measurement towers. John okay. Hogan promised these people they would come back and have an open discussion with a microphone and experts so that everybody could openly communicate. But when the residents followed up and asked Sean Leet for this meeting, he refused and said that there was no effects to the people of the Codroy Valley. Sean Lee also told me that I could have a meeting with him. And I'm attempting to request that meeting. I think it's time we have a meeting with World Energy GH2 with the decision makers, not their PR rep, Laura Barron, but with actual decision makers that can do some compromise for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. But World Energy GH2, to my understanding, they're making claims that why can't we all, uh, why can't they do their five wind measurement towers, construct them at the same time that people are moose hunting? Well, you know, that's just kind of silly, I think. Do we really think that the moose are going to stay in hunting area nine when there's construct? And it's not just putting up towers. There's access roads required. So there's a lot going on here, and it's going to be going on for months. We already have people in the air, established businesses and jobs there for over 50 years. Why are these people being ignored? And the Outfitters have met with World Energy GH2, but from my understanding, there's no compromise from this company. They are so focused on being the first producers and world leaders that they're ignoring the concerns of the residents. And wind energy projects are coming to all of Newfoundland and Labrador, and this is a huge red flag for the entire population when big business gets picked over residents. Okay. Uh, thank you for your call, Brenda. I appreciate providing the information you would appreciate, and maybe this will help you. We will, uh, the, the company is welcome to call. We'll see if they want to respond to what you've said and keep this uh, dialogue going. i got to take a break for the news. but Just one more thing. I'd like people to join a Facebook group, Protect okay. Our West Coast Newfoundland. Thank you. All right, Brenda. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. All right, time for the news. Coming up here on VOCM, Brian Medora and I can weep over the 4 nothing loss. Australia beats Canada. Back after the news here on Open Line. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Okay, before I invite my next guest on, let's get this out of the way again. The people who are calling Dave, my producer, and um, expressing concern about a comment I made about the conservative leadership race, PC leadership race, who seem to be have a very particular candidate. I love that you're listening. I'm happy that you're engaged. That's all great for politics but how about dialing it down a bit or dial in let's talk on the air i again offered an opinion on the state of the leadership race a couple of points of clarification i have no horse in the race or in this case candidate in the race uh there is no poll coming out from my polling firm on this particular race like many of you i talk to lots of people and form opinions that way you can disagree with my opinion but 
stop the minor nonsense. I have been around enough leadership races to know what this is. And it's a little bit of a goon tactic by people trying to change the narrative. Mr. Wakeham, Tony, is always on this program. I like Tony. I like talking to him. He can call again. We're going to talk later. But let's grow up a little bit. Let's put our energy to making some change, not picking at an opinion I shared. Although, this is opinion airways, so call me. Call me if you have an issue. Blue Monday, indeed. Uh, uh, you're, you're right about that. Brian, apparently a lot of people interested in Team Blue issues, so they can call if they want. Now, speaking of teams and speaking of sports, I am really happy now to welcome on my next guest. She is still the president of Curling Canada. She's the incoming president of Hockey Canada. She's a converted now curler and a hockey mom, and we're going to talk a few sports issues this morning with Kathy Henderson. Kathy, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Jim. How are you? Oh, you're joining at a wonderful time, Kathy. So it's a pleasant diversion to talk about some of the things you have been dealing with. Now, you're still at Curling Canada. Your term ends at the latter part of August. Then you go over to, to Hockey Canada. One of the things we've been talk, talking about a lot here uh, over the last few days is the Women's World Cup. And, of course, the unfortunate <laughs> loss today uh, for our Canadian women. Part of that conversation uh, is something you've worked on a lot, and that is uh, female athletes now finally getting their just recognition in terms of television time, in terms of people watching, and slowly getting there as it relates to compensation. Um, can you paint a picture of, of where we are with female sports and its growing power and growing potential? Well, sure. Well, that's, that's a pretty huge question, Tim. Uh, you know, I can speak to the sports that, that I know. And um, first of all, that was uh, a disappointing loss this morning. But, uh, you know, Hardy, uh, I, I love that team. I love that, that um, uh, the FIFA women's um, soccer team that's playing right now from Canada uh, and the things that they have done and the things that they have put on the table and have started a conversation with their uh, with their federation about. So I just uh, I want to say that disappointing loss, it is sport and those things happen they're still ranked seventh in the world i believe um, um but i i think they're an important team in at, not only as our reigning gold medalists but in in terms of the conversations that they're having um with with the public and uh, and with their federation um yeah i, I mean you know it, it is a bit of a field of dreams tim i would say you know curling has been lucky over the years um in that somebody had the foresight uh, people before me um, to start to build uh, not only Can one of Canada's um, largest women's sporting events, but actually one of Canada's largest sporting events, which is the uh, Scotty's Tournament of Hearts. And uh, what we've seen over the last number of years, it, it, curling in particular, but I can talk about other sports, is, you know, you build it and people will come. Uh, our ratings um, uh, are, are very similar to the Briar. Uh, it's a it's a huge event. Millions and millions and millions of Canadians watch it, uh, and what they're watching is great athletics. And so I would maybe offer to you that you put great athletics on television, and people will respond to it because they're watching athletes at the very top of their game. Uh, and if you put women on at the top of their game, people are watching. 
I, I was saying earlier, Kathy, before you came on, just randomly yesterday morning, I flipped on to watch Colombia and West Germany in, in soccer, and it, yeah. it, it it could have been the, the top league anywhere in the world. They just happened also to be female athletes. It was incredible. It, w- it was awesome. Yeah. And you look at the crowds in Australia, and uh, and uh, and and you you see witness to the uh, enthusiasm people have for all of this. Is there? But there still is resistance. Is there not in in different spaces and places to showcase the top female athletes in whatever sport they have. I mean, you guys have done a fantastic job in in curling. Uh, you're stepping over to hockey. Our, our female, uh, our Canadian women's team, world class. We, we see more of them, but there still is resistance. And how do you break that resistance? Well, you know, I, I think it's, I don't think it's um, necessarily any more resistance to the idea of women playing hockey, women playing soccer, women curling. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's the old way. You know, we, we've got a formula. Okay. We put certain things on at certain times. So I will say, um, you know, when when we moved, uh, I think in 2017, to equalize the pay um, with the women, which I had uh, with the team intended on doing anyway. What we made sure is is that we were also investing in that product, so that not only was it the right thing to do, which it was, and we would have done it anyway, but it was a really good business decision as well. I don't know a CEO out there that you know, if you have a chance to have two really great top products, wouldn't want that rather than one. So investing in the, I guess in the showcase, investing in you know, really you know, demonstrating the athleticism of these women and their sort of their toughness, their tenacity, their skill, their strategy is not just uh, a really good thing to do. It's a really smart thing to do as well. Another smart thing to do is to invest in uh, initiatives that push, encourage, and welcome diversity and broader equity in sport. You've done a lot of that at curling and you're, and you're reaping some of the benefits. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, we are, and and uh, it, it's been a huge push um, that we have. We've got, uh, I'll tell you a couple things about it. You know, I'll start off by saying it's by no means perfect. I mean, we're we're taking steps, but these are generational changes that need to be uh, you know need to be made. Um, but we're certainly seeing it um, in our youth curling, uh, and and so you know what what we are doing is we're making sure curling's a great sport. I, I guarantee any you know any one of your listeners, any one of you, if you you know go you know get onto the ice with a curler and they show you how to curl curling is fun but the experience of walking into a club um, may not be nearly as familiar for a lot of people and it may not be something they think about very much it's got a lot of funny traditions and and sort of heritage around it there's some quirks to it uh for sure um but but you know where where the effort really needs to be made is is i think not to just invite people in to curl because curling is a great sport, but is to really take the time to understand what this particular sport could mean for a particular community. And, um, and one of the things that I think is really amazing about curling is the sense of community that you, that you get, you know, you go into a club and people are friends and they babysit each other's kids and they, um, you know, they travel together to go see other curling events. So there's a huge sense of, of community that you get there. And, you know, we really need to 
step outside of those club doors and not just invite them in the door, but really understand and perhaps change ourselves uh, to say, how can we bring more of this great community to other people? How do, how do we make sure that those communities are invited into our clubs and feel really comfortable? So one of the things that we have been doing, I, I think you probably realize uh, about a year ago, we did um, a seminar, uh, Dr. Uh, a symposium, Dr. Heather Mayer, Dr. Richard Norman from the University of Waterloo, and a number of academics from all over Canada and a couple of people even internationally participated to invite those discussions, not just amongst, you know, sort of the, I, I guess, the administrators, but to bring the club managers and the people who are actually, you know, living in the communities that are housing these thousand uh, clubs across Canada and starting to have those conversations just to make sure that a conversations on the table b that people understand the resourcing that's available but c for them to tell us curling canada what it is that they they need and uh, we've started to act upon those things and we can start to see the effect uh you know very quickly well, speaking of effect, um, you're making history. You're a humble person from uh, from northern Ontario, but you're a, a trailblazer and a history maker. You're going to be the first female CEO of Hockey Canada. And hopefully in 20 years, it won't matter to identify you as female or male and just say you're, you're the CEO. But it, but it is historic. Um, you're a self-described hockey mom who is going into Hockey Canada. I know you're not there yet, but as you move over from Curling Canada, to Hockey Canada starting in September. What is what what made you take the job and what do you hope to do? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, first of all, like many, many people in Canada, uh, and according to statistics, the majority of people in Canada, uh, hockey is really important in, in my life, um, you know, as a fan, as a mom, you know, as a um, you know, as an administrator, and, you know, hockey is just absolutely enormous. And I think hockey has the ability to create that, you know, that, that sort of community. And I, I've been part of that community. I've had very, very good experiences with it. Um, but I also um, recognize that Hockey Canada right now has some change that they need. Uh, and, and you know, I'm willing to work with the, with the very good board that we have right now uh, to start to implement that change along with our other stakeholders, you know, Sport Canada and our funding partners, but mostly and most importantly, our members and our participants. And uh, I, I really want to hear what it is that they want from hockey and where we need to go from hockey and then work in partnership with them to make it happen. You know, it might help our listeners because you and I have talked about it privately before, but talk about your time as a hockey mom and how that, I mean, you're a world-class sports executive and I'm not trying to put you in a box as, as a hockey mom, but it's such an important role too. How does that help? How will that help inform what you do when you step into your role in September? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good question, Tim. And I mean, we all we all see the world through the eyes, you know, of our lived experience. Uh, and so without going into all kinds of family history, there's a lot of hockey in my family. But I, you know, I when my son was was um, four years old, I started having him uh, work with the Scarborough Ice Raiders. Um, I think they were called the Agent Court Canadians back then in the Scarborough Hockey League. It's part of the GTHL. And he played till he was about 17. Uh, and he played at a level where I was, you know, a couple practices and a couple of games a week. Uh, and I really found not only um, was, was I watching a lot of enjoyable hockey and learning tons more about the game, but I was really watching how the community comes together to support kids. And I found, uh, you know, I, I went in thinking, 
what I really want for my son is a really great hockey experience. And I ended up finding it was a great family experience for us all. Uh, Traveled with the team quite a bit. Uh, I ended up, you know, sort of, you know, working with the team management and and coaches, you know, helping put together, um, you know, sorting out things for tournaments and doing all that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, they became really good friends of mine and they're people I still socialize with. So I realized the power of hockey on, on people's, uh, on people's lives. And I really watched my son um, who uh, I think the experience of going through that, um, not just, you know, learning the typical lessons that you learn in sport, you know, how to, how to win well, how to lose well, how to grow, how to develop. But I think the other thing is, you know, he sat on a, on a bench with three men standing behind him that yeah. became good friends and mentors and, and realized that they were also volunteers. And right now my son's 22 years old and he's just initiated. He's actually, and it was before I ever, you know, I was even talking about this role. He started to um, take the coaching courses through the uh, uh, Canadian Coaches Association to become a hockey coach himself. He just believes with all his heart that you have to start giving back. Well, he, he certainly has learned that lesson from his mom because uh, how Kathy and I met, Kathy was volunteering with the Rugby Canada board as I was volunteering with the rugby board while playing a senior role at the Pan Am Games and run, running Curling Canada. So he's got a good role model there. Kathy, la- la- last question for you, and it's one I know you speak about often, but I think it'd be helpful for the, the listeners to hear it. We're coming out of a period, coming out of the pandemic. We're coming out of a period yeah. where national sports organizations have been under scrutiny for things they didn't address and should address and it's not just hockey Canada you're not alone in all of that but I think we're at a time where people want to see the power of sport utilized for good how do we do that well, uh, you know, I first of all, I agree. We're coming out of we're coming out of a pandemic, and I think sport is probably one of the most powerful things that we can do for ourselves as a nation to help recover from sport, physically, mentally, economically. I mean, socially, all of the above. Sport is just has a huge power, um, and you know, I'm of great belief that sport. Um, that, that children and actually and any participant, you have a right to be able to access sport. And we've got to think long and hard about that. Um, so, you know, I, I think what we need to do, though, is, is, is to listen more about what the public needs and wants out of sport. And sport used to be, I use it for exercise and maybe I get a little social enjoyment out. But, you know, with, with just the visibility of sport and the visibility of the organizations around it, what I think the public is saying to us um, is, is we want exemplary type of values and behavior that we expect when we play sport. We also want to see it managed that way. And um, I, 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 my full intention is to continue to listen to what the participants, the public, the member associations, uh, the people administer, what it is that they want out of sport, and then work in partnership with them to deliver it. All right. Well, we, we look forward to uh, watching you uh, lead Hockey Canada. And uh, as a minor hockey coach, I watch <clears throat> with particular interest. Uh, thank you for your time today, Kathy. Greatly appreciate it. Okay. Thanks so much, Tim. Take care. That was uh, Kathy Henderson, the outgoing president of Curling Canada, the incoming president of Hockey Canada. Pay attention to what she said and watch her in her role. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Back with your calls after that. 
Welcome back to Open Line. Well, you just heard Kathy Henderson there. I don't know if the, the Tory Sea of Blue has settled or the choppy waves are banging at our shores, but happy to talk about that again. But we got, uh, I think, Tom Babcock on line four about a toolbox. Probably some Tories think I'm a toolbox this morning, but that's life. Anyway, how are you, Tom? Go ahead. I'm not too bad, Tim, yourself. Not bad, thank you. You found one or something? What's the story? That's right, yeah. First of all, how's the weather in Ottawa? Uh, you know what? Today, today, not bad. It's not 40 degrees yet, so I haven't uh, walked out into the, the, the sauna, but uh, but it's all right. How's it How's it where you are? Where are you in Newfoundland today? Home? I, are you in I'm town? Kil- I'm in Kilbride. Okay, okay. This, I should note that, of course, Kilbride is different than St. John's, uh, sort, sort of. Anyway, what do you got, Tom? What do you got for me? I'm sorry, I was just over at the UPS store shipping some fish off to a friend of mine in Ottawa. So, uh, Anyway, uh, what I called about was that when I was coming home from the fisheries Saturday morning, mm-hmm. uh, the, it was a gentleman in front of me driving a pickup truck, and uh, he turned uh, left onto the ruby line, and uh, his huge big toolbox fell out in front of me. Oh, jeez. Uh, so, uh, and there's some wonderful tools in it I'd like to have that I don't have myself, but uh, I'm sure he uses it to apply his profession. Uh, Dave has my uh, Dave has my number on speed dial. So if the gentleman is listening or anybody who knows him is listening, uh, just call Dave, and I'm sure Dave will give him my number and we'll see if we connect him with his tools. And sorry, where did that happen again? You were just in case the guys yeah, forgot. I, I've, sorry, I was calling from Petty Harbor, and he was turning left on Babel's Road onto Ruby Line. Okay. And Dave has the number for you to get. Uh, and look at you. Look, no three-finger discount there, Tom. Good man. I mean, particularly if you like tools. That's very honest of you. Uh, no, no, no. I wouldn't do something like that to a man, take away his profession. My goodness, there's some, some wonderful tools in there that, that I would like to own. I'm sitting in it, so maybe he won't call me and I'll get them, but I couldn't do that for the guy. <laughs> well, I appreciate I appreciate your honesty. Uh, good to know the people of Kilbride are such honest souls. And uh, wow. we will, we will, we will, we will take the call if the gentleman happens to be listening, or somebody who knows a gentleman who lost uh, this toolbox. Um, you can call Tom through us, and we'll get your tools back. Thanks for the call, Tom. Yeah. One final little note. My my sure. nine-year-old little pussycat. Uh, well, she was 14 years old. She died on Saturday, uh, and I was desperately looking for a kitten. So anybody out there who has a free kitten, uh, can you give me a call, please, and, and get him off my back? There's a, he wants a kitten. So, oh, I'm, uh, I'm, oh sorry. That's, that uh, happened. That's, no, she was 14 years old. So that I know. I, yeah. I, I uh, have, uh, have a cat here. As, as you know, my mom used to run the SPCA for years. I know what it's like to lose yeah. an animal. It just sucks. Okay. Uh, sorry to hear that, but... Uh, Good luck finding a kitten. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Time for another break here on VOCM's Open Line. I believe when we come back, we'll have uh, Minister Andrew Parsons to talk about a whole penalty of things back here on Open Line shortly. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Okay, this being open line, we solve problems and help people as quickly as we can. Just before we go to Andrew Parsons, we're going to go to Trevor on line 5 who wants to tell us about a boat that's off its moorings. Trevor, where are you and what's going on? 
Hey, man, I'm down in Flat Rock here now, and there seems to be a boat that uh, must have took on some water overnight, and it's kind of just floating there with right water up to the gunnels. Okay. Well, we will. Uh, you've just mentioned this. Appreciate it. We'll. Uh, if anybody who owns the boat or knows about the boat or knows who owns the boat, uh, they better get down and, and deal with that. And uh, keep uh, keep Dave aware of it there, Trevor, if you can, or text us and let us know what's happening. We got another hour and a bit on the air, and uh, if the person hasn't uh, heard about it by then, we'll give it another poke. How's that? Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Trevor. Oh, this just creates the best segue, the best segue possible to introduce the minister from uh, the Port of Basque area, the minister who of lost causes, by that I mean supports the Montreal Canadiens, the minister of industry, energy and technology. Are you ever off your moorings, Andrew Parsons? I mean, they, they, I, I didn't ask him to call in, but that was so good. That uh, that's a pretty good description, actually. It's pretty, <laughs> <laughs> not bad at all. Well, uh, but I, I will tell you, I'm out on the west coast, and it's a gorgeous sunny day here. So pretty good oh, way to start off a, a week, you know? Yeah, well, better, better than your Montreal Canadiens. Though we'll see with Young Newhook this year. Now, listen, whole bunch of quick things to to get to with you. Uh, seeing you are out there, um, got a guy from Burnt Island called me last week when I was on talking about their the, the assistance from Hurricane Fiona not getting to them as quickly, uh, that they're not being getting the same attention as people are in Port of Basque. What can you say about that? Yeah, and I'm getting a bit tired, to be honest with you. I'm aware of who the person is calling, and it's, uh, it's pretty much a weekly occasion. Now, what I will say is everybody's being treated pretty fair here. I mean, I will tell you this. Government stepped up in a big way, and the vast majority of people that have gone through this uh, have been taken care of, we're in the process of taking care of, and I think people are very appreciative. Obviously, there are some cases that are not as straightforward as others, uh, but calling in all the time and complaining and saying that, you know, people are corrupt and stuff, look, I'm just a bit tired. Okay. I got to be honest with you. And uh, look, there's a full team that's working on this. People have been working on it day in, day out. So, look, I, I get the fact that it's frustrating, but, you know, it's frustrating when you get a weekly reminder that you're corrupt and you're in this for the wrong reasons and you're not doing anything to help people. That uh, gets a bit tiring. Indeed it does. Um, look, you got so much on your plate. Let, let's just work through the issues that I have. Uh, the one we originally called about. So Valet sold 13% of its business to the Saudi Arabian mining company. Valet, of course, has uh, Long Harbor and uh, potentially other interests in the province. Any concerns about that transaction and how it may impact their operations in the province? No, I think it's a, a positive thing. What we're seeing here is, you know, more capital being invested here, which is with the goal of uh, ramping up production in much-needed fields when we're talking about uh, copper, uh, when we're talking about ore. And, and right now, I mean, you see the Saudis. I mean, I, I won't get into a regime conversation here, but they're certainly – uh, they're spending big, whether it's in entertainment, whether it's in sport, and in this case, they're investing in critical minerals. Uh, look, Valley's been a great, I think, asset Newfoundland and Labrador. There's a hell of a lot of job and opportunity that's been created. Uh, so in this case, it is an investment in that people see the need of it. Uh, so it seems to me to be absolutely positive, like anything. Well, we'll monitor and keep an eye on it. Um, but the fact is that people know that there's a huge calling for these for these assets, for this minerals. 
Uh, so, like I say, if anything, people are noticing Newfoundland and Labrador more and more on a global scale, I think. Yeah, and I'm guessing, Andrew, because it's a transaction between a Brazilian company and a Saudi company, uh, there is no Canadian regulatory requirement in in the transaction in and of itself. Uh, or, or is there no. something that needs to be reviewed because they're working in Canada that you know of? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, obviously, whatever impacts it will have on Newfoundland and Labrador, we will monitor closely, including benefits agreements and environmental. But I don't think it actually changes it. It's not like there's a majority takeover here. Uh, We have minority interests. So I don't think it will change anything on a day-to-day basis. But I'm also open to, uh, like I say, this is still fairly new. uh, Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there will be multiple entities, federal and provincial, uh, just keeping an eye on this. Uh, another one on the list, fuel charge. Uh, you know, we talked to the prime minister about it last week. Uh, still, he seems to be in a place where um, they're not going to uh, address or build in or find, at least at this point, an accommodation for Atlantic Canada, given, according to the parliamentary budget officer, we pay three times what they do, or will have three times the impact, I should say, what it does in Ontario and Quebec. I know you've spoken about the impact the fuel service charge is going to have on Marine Atlantic. I think I saw you speak last week about a lack of consultations or if there were consultations, you were unaware of them. Where does this stand now? How, how, how is the province going to deal with this? We're in line with the other three Atlantic provinces. Where do we go from here, given the prime minister's recent response? Well, I mean, there's no doubt. I think they're they're going to you know, stay in this position that they're in. They've made a decision. They'll stick with it. Uh, we certainly disagree with it, uh, and we'll continue to advocate uh, to make sure that we're treated fairly. We don't think in this particular case we have been, and uh, putting everybody in the same position is a complete ignoring of uh, factors that make us different. We are not the same as other provinces. We have a different geography. We have a, a different population. There's a whole bunch of things. So for, you know, I think we already pay uh, certainly enough. The problem I have sometimes is that the response becomes just solely climate change. And mm-hmm. as if there's, as if it's a, a case of us saying, no, we don't support uh, efforts to reduce emissions and we're not supportive of climate change initiatives. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, but Again, look, I do I do worry about the impacts. I worry about the impacts when it comes to uh, the fact that we have to bring you know a vast majority of our goods and uh, requirements into this province through whether it's Marine Atlantic or through Oceanix. What is the impact going to be? And are we going to pay more for it? Are we going to be disproportionately affected? That's still a concern. It's not going away. I found it interesting in in one of his responses, and he was clearly well-briefed. He said, uh, look, one of the things Newfoundland is doing, and this is helping, um, uh, maybe he didn't explain it to the extent he should have, but he referenced what's going on and come by chance in the biofuels uh, recycling that's happening there with with Cressa. Is that a fair point? Absolutely, that's a fair point, that they are making an investment in that, as we have. Certainly, I think the province... Uh, we did our part to work with the company to allow for that transition when they shut down and then we worked with the company to get big things back up and running and the feds have come in and again they're supportive Uh, but just being supportive on that does not mean that you don't have responsibilities on everything else and no different on a file people think if you have a disagreement with somebody on one file that we're going to have a disagreement on every file that's not have governance work. That's life. Yeah, yeah we, we have to work with the feds on a multitude of issues, and we have good relations on many things. 
This is one particular issue, though, that we do not agree with, we do not support, and we've encouraged, you know, a lot of it, too, was making sure people understood that this was a federal decision. Like, you know, a lot of times people aren't able to differentiate between the, the different levels of government decisions. So we want to make clear, look, this is your decision. You guys can handle the questions on it and while you're doing it. Uh, one thing you have uh, announced, it was last week, I believe it was, um, the new job accelerator and growth program. Tell us about that. So, yeah, this is a program that we've been working on for some time. Basically, it's an incentivization of creation of jobs. Uh, so the long and short is it's basically that it's a payroll incentive. If you create in the realm of 20 jobs over three years at a minimum level, uh, and again, in a multitude of different uh, possible industries, we will give you a payroll incentive. Basically, we're going to help subsidize the creation of those jobs. And there are extra increases if you're bringing in uh, new graduates, which is a huge issue everywhere. We're trying to retain that young workforce, as well as you're bringing in somebody with particular skill sets uh, so, again, we, we study this as sort of like a, an offshoot of the EDGE program, which was started in the 90s, was great, uh, but it's sort of become irrelevant and hasn't had a lot of uptake. In this case, we, we've got, well, we're trying to invest in Newfoundland and Labrador companies, or if somebody wants to come to this province and set up, we're going to do what we can uh, to up, increase the uptake on it, to increase the reality that you're going to come here. And the fact is we're in competition with everybody. Everybody has a similar program. So we looked around. This one makes us, I think, top of the line in, in Atlantic Canada. Last question for you, and I, I think this is in your portfolio, and we'll be able to answer it anyway, but um, some of this is self-interested. Uh, air travel into Newfoundland and Labrador, the former owner of this radio station, John Steele, started a bit of a debate, which I think was good uh, when he spoke at NL, the NL Energy Conference about the need for government to look at potentially subsidizing uh, airlines to have uh, routes in this province, and that's done in Winnipeg, it's done in elsewhere. So it's not an unusual thing to do. We saw last week WestJet uh, announced new direct flights out of St. John's going to Florida and Calgary, I believe. We've got, you know, Lynx and other airlines in there. How important is improve? and I ask you this as the Minister of Industry, how important is it to make our commercial air transportation linkage system better, and what's the government looking at doing? It's absolutely important. It's top of mind, uh, to be honest with you. It's a file that's sort of led, like the Premier himself is certainly playing a role here. Myself and the Minister for Tourism, Steve Crocker, are heavily involved. And it's a conversation I was aware of when Mr. Steele made the, uh, the remarks. And it was something that we were discussing even before then, because access to this province is probably more important than anywhere else, given the difficulty of reaching here. And the reality is we have to consider these types of options. It's happening elsewhere. Uh, so it's not like you're, you're the first in the game. I mean, other provinces and states are doing the exact same thing. So it's a top of mind uh, conversation. There's a, let's just say there's a lot of conversations going on there, but people do not realize that if we don't have access here, people are just as likely not to come here, whether it's on a tourism level mm -hmm. and spending their dollars or on a business level. We've even got people that are making investments here, but the difficulty they had to go through when just trying to get here, in some cases, it's turning them away from doing it. We have to recognize that. So whether it's by air or by sea, we need to do everything we can to make it easier. Just the logistics of it alone, take away the money of it. It's harder to get here. And I always say there's a reason because it's more special here. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. 
<laughs> that's a, just a, a toss that one out there. But the, the reality is, look, if, if it's going to take you longer and it's more expensive, and, and not only that, there's just no access here, people aren't going to come. We are not going to be able to sustain. We, we need to take measures. So there is, let's just say, some very active conversations on that front. All right, I teased you. I got one very, I know this is the most important question you're going to get today. Now, this will determine whether you're free of your moorings or not, like the boat in Fairyland. Are the Canadians going to make the playoffs or not? Now, I don't want some delusional Montreal Canadian fan answer. I want clear-eyed here. I'm a very realistic Montreal fan. I would say um, if I were putting some money on this, no, I don't think they get there. I think the Eastern Conference is going to be tougher this year uh, than ever. I think everybody's stocking up. Uh, to me, though, you got to accept those years. So let's have a good year with player development. Let's see New Hook come in and have a good year. Uh, let's see all these prospects. I'd, I'd love to see the new draft pick, see where he ends up. So I don't think we make it to playoffs. But look, as long as we beat the Leafs, on a couple of occasions. Listen, that's that's our Stanley Cup right there. There, I'm with you on that common purpose. All right, Minister Andrew Parsons, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Right. Thanks, Tim. Cheers. Take care, Minister Andrew Parsons, industry technology and many other things. Uh, time for a break here. When we come back, Doc O'Keefe on the other side. Always like chatting with Doc. Back with you shortly. So I was going up Topsail Road in June during the Tele 10. It was hot. Oh, my goodness. It was hot. And there, like a vision, he appeared before me, Doc O'Keefe, who's on the line now. He was like the Messiah. Hello, Doc. How are you? I'm good, Tim. How are you? Well, better than I was in that day. It was hot when we were by your place, man. That was, I, I feel for the Tele 10 organizers. They try and pick dates that uh, are weather conducive, but in this day and age, it's hard to find one. But you were there, old reliable, the Messiah of Topsail Road, standing right there. I've been called a lot of things, but never a vision. <laughs> well, I didn't say if it was beauty or not, Doc. Doc, I just said you were there. Anyway, what's yeah. on your mind today, my friend? Yeah, I, I just wanted to comment, Tim. I've been listening, uh, and a few people have called in recently, and I thought, uh, as, uh, including this morning, and I thought it would be really worthy of comment. Yep. Uh, one was Rob Strong. Rob was called in a few times and emphasizing the positive aspects of offshore Newfoundland Labrador for the future. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he particularly uh, identified some of the tie-back opportunities and the, the new opportunities in the very, very active John Dark Basin, which I thought was uh, uh, very encouraging and very, very positive. And, of course, he followed up and he did send me a copy of the statement of the CFO of Equinor, man by the name yes. of Torgrim Raitan. And uh, his his uh, speculation, if you want, his position, and I guess it would be the Equinor position on the Bay of the Nord, which I thought was really, really positive given what has happened in the past. And, I mean, what the man said was very bullish that, uh, one, Bay of the Nord will happen, <clears throat> two, they are redesigning the project, and that was the motivation behind the uh, post-moment, and that the project was 
extremely important for Newfoundland and Labrador as well as Equinor. So, you know, and just, just, Doc, let me stop you there so people yep. understand the importance of where he said it. So he's the CFO for Equinor, and he said this on an investor's call. So why is that important? Because these investors are the people, as the word would suggest, who uh, rate your company, decide to invest or not invest in your company. And if you're not truthful with them over time, that can be very, very damning to your company. So, and, and CFOs, as you and I both know, chief financial officers are the least likely of any corporate officer to be definitive on something unless they're absolutely certain. I agree. And, and, and that underscores the importance, one, of what the man said, and secondly, the message that he wanted to get out. Mm-hmm. The other comment I wanted to make, Tim, on, uh, is on energy, in, yep. in particular wind energy. And I listened with a lot of interest this morning to Brenda Kitchen. And, you know, it underscored... What she said underscored what I said a long time ago, uh, this, I guess, earlier last year or later last year, uh, when the whole aspect of world uh, energy came up and wind energy came up and the project on the southwest coast. And at the time, I, uh, I, I guess I spoke to Petty Daly about the environmental assessment and the fact that uh, world energy was responsible for doing basically its own environmental assessment and or having it done rather than an independent body uh, like for instance uh, the uh, canadian assessment agency right. uh, taking an arm's length look at the whole project before anything began and that didn't happen because now it's not really arm's length. I think it's a huge conflict of interest on the part of uh, world, uh, world energy. And so now in the meantime, you have them wanting to go into a, a very sensitive area right now uh, on the southwest coast and putting up four or five exploratory towers, which none of this activity should be going on until there's a full environmental assessment on the project as to whether or not it should go ahead. I mean, it's as simple as that. If that doesn't happen, we're running the danger of getting into another one of those messes that we're famous for going back to 1949. And we've had a few of them. All right, I know you, i got to give you like one minute because I want to get to Jim. You want to offer some quick comment on the PC leadership race? Yeah, I want to say that uh, I reached out to Eugene Manning, and the man met with me twice, and we had really two two-hour meetings and talked about uh, his position uh, on the important issues today in Newfoundland Labrador, talked about the fact that as a result of all our com- my conversations with him, I think he'd be an excellent leader for the PC party and an excellent premier, next premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. He has the energy. He has the, he's a builder. His philosophy on government and how government should tackle things is very practical. And uh, I think uh, he's a builder for the future of Newfoundland Labrador. He's a good candidate and he's young, he's new, and he's got the energy. 
All right. Well, he'll appreciate that endorsement the way can people probably be mad at me, but I'll let you know I didn't call Doc and ask him to say that. He said that on his own. Yeah. Anybody who supports Tony or any of the other candidates, you're welcome to call. Uh, so good to talk to you this morning, Doc. I can't wait to see the vision again the next time I'm up on Topsail Road. All right? Me, me too. <laughs> All right. Take okay. care, buddy. Okay, Tim. Bye. Bye. All right. Uh, Jim, line one, you want to talk about the housing crunch in St. John's. But lots of empty houses in rural Newfoundland. Yeah, uh, how are you getting on today, Tim? I am okay, sir. How are you? Good. I'm calling from the, that beautiful town of Conception Bay, North River. Oh, yeah, I'm North River. I used to go out there with my dad. I like North River. It's a fine spot. Oh, indeed, that's, that's what it is. I tell you the reason why I'm calling. I got two uh, machines to talk about this morning. I was talking about, I listed in there all the time about Newfoundland Labrador housing. They got no houses for people to rent or anything like this. They've got a house out here in uh, between Cubits and uh, South River. It's been there vacant for about uh, going on two years now. I was talking to Patty O'Daly, Patty Daly, there six months ago, and mm -hmm. there still haven't been a thing done with it. The, the meter is still in the house, and the, uh, here's the government, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador are talking about they have got housing. They got this debt. Here they are paying a light bill on that house. And nobody there. Where were all those inspectors? Once somebody moves at the house, where are the inspectors to going around seeing what houses that they had? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that good question. I don't know. No, that's what I say. They, they don't. The left hand in the government don't know what the right hand is doing. That's my opinion. Okay. And I mean, nope. you know, you got houses. People out here crying to get a house, Newfoundland Labrador house. Here's houses there. The government has paid the light bill on it every month. They've been paying the light bill on it for two years, and nobody living into it. There's something wrong. Yep. That's, hey, fair comment. All right. What else you got? I got to give you about a minute and a half here. What do you got? Okay, I'll do a comment on the road, the road condition here in North River. We got okay, money go here, it. only potholes. <laughs> uh, four years ago, four years yeah. ago, the, they come up here and they done four kilometers of pavement. They were supposed to come back the next year, but then we had an election in between that. Uh, Mrs. Conaway got in up here, but now we don't get no more pavement. We got money, only uh, a dray pad. A dray, pad, a dray pad is when the horses used to go around, the wheels would go down in the holes, okay. and they stay up. Oh, okay. they're using North River uh, as a, a giddy place. If there's a, an accident on the bypass road, they close everything off, and everything goes through North River just like like early in the morning. Uh, from uh, Porty Grave, Clark's Beach, everywhere, used our, our road itself. And, you know, we got to uh, bear all these holes and everything else. And there's one more thing i got to say. Right there on the Roaches line, between Roaches line and the Trans-Canada Highway, there's holes yep. on the side of the road. There's two members, drives back and forth that highway every day, and they got to see the holes on the sides of the road. Uh, Pam Parsons, she's one of them, and Mr. Cracker. They are members in the House of Assembly in St. John. You mean tell me they can't see the holes on the sides of the road? One of these days, somebody's going to be killed on that highway. Yep. You got to be careful with those potholes. I know that is the son of a of a road bill. It's, it's ridiculous. You, you could go on that highway. I mean, here's the members from this district driving along the highway from Roach's Line to the Trans Canada Highway. There's holes 
Read along, bodyguard, rail, you can take your car and put your car down and do And nobody, and that's been like now almost a year. And nobody well, Jim, I got to... I got to put a pothole in this conversation and deflate the tire, man. I got to take a break here for for the news. But thank you for your call. You keep up uh, talking about those roads. Maybe something will get done. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, honey. Take care. Uh, Patty, Jim, you're doing so good. We have like a rhymy name. I'm Tim. Anyway, time for a news break here on VOCM's Open Line. Leanne, we'll be back with you after that. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to Open Line. Now, just before I go to Leanne, I, she's, I feel like the Canadian soccer team today. I'm, I'm not having a winning day, though I'm trying my best. So apparently there will be Open Line on Wednesday, regardless of the regatta. So that's great. Patty will actually be back on Wednesday, just so you know. All right, Leanne, line three. It sounds like uh, you've had some harrowing travel experiences based on the oh, note I have God. here. <laughs> let her rip. Let her rip. <laughs> I think I recognize you from CFRA at home, actually. You do, yeah. Um, yeah. I do. Okay. So we are having a time. I'm trying to come home to bury my mother. She passed away during COVID, so we had to oh, wait. I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, trying to get home, we flew the new budget airline link. Oh, you um, did, Leanne. I flew that uh, two weeks ago. Um, it, it it doesn't resemble its name, shall we say? Anyway, go ahead. Of course. So the flight was magnificent. The people on board were magnificent. Yep. But flying from, we flew from Montreal. We got out there Sunday. <laughs> we tried to get here. Cats are pulled apart. I have compression stuff that I wear and I have medication. Cats are pulled it apart. We missed the plane. I could kiss the pilot. He was in the window. Wouldn't let us board. So we took our luggage off. Back to Ottawa we went. I sat on the phone for three hours with Link. The call center is in the Philippines, by the way. Yep. Uh, not here. And uh, they finally agreed to rebook us. They booked us on Tuesday to come out. But you can't buy time. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, gone, right? Um, we got here. No luggage. My mother's mask cards were in there my compression wear, my medicine, because I thought, okay, so this time I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to pack my medicine so Katza doesn't need to pull it apart. So we got here and no luggage. It's now, we've been here since last. I don't even know my days anymore. It's been a week and still no luggage. No, like, I don't know where it is. I don't know, like, my life is in the bag. In that Wow. And a week and they still of- don't know. That's crazy. Oh, and hope it gets better. We, we so you know how you cannot get a car on the island oh, yeah. in the summer. Okay. For, we, the first time we tried to book a car, we could get one for Truro. It was a Mercedes type, you know, van. It was a Mercedes 11, Sprinter van. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there you it go. It was eleven thousand four hundred dollars. Oh my. So then you know, um, I remember when I was home with the kids twelve years ago. It was nine hundred fifty bucks for ten days. So this time, I said, okay, let's try something else. Let's be sneaky. Let's go to U-Haul or budget. So we rented a truck. Mm-hmm. Great deal, 25 bucks a day, plus mileage, whatever. We got home. The guy, buddy in Foxtrap gave the truck away. He's like, he said, oh, they didn't return the truck. I said, well, what are you going to do? He says, uh, well, we, they got a nice a courtesy call on the 19th. I go, well, when did the calls get a little more aggressive? Or when do you call RNC? 
you know. <laughs> so we never got the truck. And it's just been like, you know, well, you want people to visit the island, but like, mm-hmm. it's not cheap to get here, like the minister said. It's not the most. I can I can go to England like mm-hmm. cheaper. Like I worked for Brookfield Energy. I used to go to Tennessee yep. and and everywhere a lot cheaper. So I just you know they need to do something. They do need to be more proactive. You know you know give, don't throw money at Air Canada. You know stop bailing them out. Give money to PAL. Let them expand. You know what I mean? Like I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just. Ottawa it, needs more direct flights. There's a lot. Well, of we don't have about. any right now, right? I mean, there's some talk no, in here. I think Air Canada's giving us one back, Leanne. I think, how lucky are we, right? They're going to give us one back. But I, I, look, you're, as you know, you're preaching to the converted because I fly, I'm home a lot. Uh, and now I find I have to build in more time because flights get canceled. We're not a priority in, in the region. Uh, people think that's a myth, but I suggest you fly any, uh, any of the airlines going to Atlantic Canada, except maybe PAL, they're getting better at it. Um, and you will find that, yeah, you're the first canceled, the last rescheduled regardless of your status it's it's tough um i i i thankfully my mom is still living uh and is in in pretty good form but she had some health issues last year and going back more was was harder um yeah and and links uh, they're nice people i agree with you on the on the on the plane and they mean well but they're they're still a disorganized hot mess from what i can see with my one experience trying to get back and maybe that's normal when you're a, a starting airline but uh, so all, all to say are you when are you supposed to leave uh, and Friday. how are how are they tracking your bag your bag please give it back <laughs> oh my well have you at least had a good time in the days you've been home so we had a re- my family, the clan, the Carroll clan. We had a reunion last night at Pippi Park. It okay. was glorious, glorious. So yes, I'm so happy to see the cousins, and and it was a really nice turnout for my mother's service at Mount good. Carmel, and the Basilica did a good job. And it was just lovely, lovely, lovely. Just you know, just I, was, I like my medicine. Because <laughs> it's hard to you know, do your medicine when like I'm sure there's a medical place that's open today, but. You know, when you first get home and you have no wheels, like you're just trying yeah. to figure it out, so you're flying by the seat of your pants. Well, so. you're also losing time then going to the clinic, and then you got to give them your OHIP card, and then some people maybe sk- <laughs> yeah. it's it's, it's I, I I know it well. All right, Leanne. Well, I hope your bag comes. I hope you get back uh, to Ottawa in one piece. And <laughs> I'm sorry for the ordeal, but we'll start a supporters club around this because there are thousands of us going through this oh, challenge. No, I know. <laughs> something for sure okay my darling you have a day thank you you're welcome uh take care that was leanne all right laurie kennedy the vice chair of paradise soccer the sun splash tournament uh how are you this morning i'm good thanks tim how are you well, I got to tell you, you're. I, I was so I heard about the tournament last week, and then I was running uh, here in Ottawa, listening to Terry Ryan's podcast, and they were talking about it on it too, because I guess Terry's daughter was playing it. I didn't realize it was such a huge tournament. I think that's awesome. How did it all go? It went really well. I mean, you know. I guess with, for the sheer size of it, I mean, 116 teams, 66 boys, 50 girls, U11, 12, 13, you know, such a great age. 
the tournament started, uh, you know, Thursday evening, four o'clock, and last night at nine forty, we gave out the last medals. So wow. long weekend, yeah, and teams from everywhere, Tim, like you know, all over the metro region, but also from CBN, Southern Shore, Bjorn Peninsula, Exploit, Central, Clarenville, all the way to Cornerbrook, you know, and it's pretty exciting. We got people asking, you know, is Sunsplash, you know, always the end of the of, of July because we want to make sure we plan our holidays around and not miss it, of course, right? It, Terry was describing it in his podcast as sort of the unofficial all Newfoundlands because, as you just alluded to, you get all these teams coming in. How did you get so many teams and make it such a success, at least attendance-wise, and, and it sounds like all all around? Yeah, you know, it's been growing and growing each year. And, of course, COVID like, put a damper on many things, of course. But prior to COVID, we were probably in the, you know, probably five, six, seven years ago, we are in the 40, 50 range. And then all of a sudden it ballooned to 72. And then last year it was 93. And now this year, 116. It's, it's just exploded to something that everyone wants to be part of. And, you know, the, not only the kids love playing soccer, the parents and grandparents and the siblings, they're all out, they're all watching and enjoying. And when the weather works, it's a great weekend. We had, it's not called Sunsplash for any reason. For, 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 uh, we had some sun and a little bit of splash too so <laughs> it was all good <laughs> well, better than the fog bowl, right? Uh, so, uh, just uh, look, everybody wins in a tournament like this because I know with uh, Sun in, in that age category, just being at the tournament and around their friends and playing soccer all day and watching other people play, it's it's a winning thing. But yeah. there are competitive aspects to it. So, who uh, who were some of the victors uh, over the weekend? Oh, there was a lot of victors. We gave out uh, 14 sets of medals of gold, silver, wow. and bronze. There were 42 medal presentations in all the age categories. So, you know, there was winners like Bjorn Peninsula Jr. 13 won last night. The boys, 13 from Paradise won. St. John's had winners. Mount Pearl had winners. Southern Shore had winners. So, you know, there's a broad range of who won the tournament in the various age categories. So that's great to see that, you know, some, some of the teams from outside the metro area, but as well inside, you know, the metro area also won. And, uh, you know, the excitement was there. So that makes it all worthwhile Tim when you're looking around and seeing the smiles on the kids faces at the end of yeah. it it just makes all the hours of volunteering so worthwhile um, you know because when you got that many people I mean I got to say there must have been there's 1800 kids 300 That's coaches awesome. 100 officials like you know you got probably 5,000 people going to the town of paradise over the last four days so you know I really want to shout out to our board our staff all the other parent volunteers as well as the town staff who were instrumental in keeping like you know all the traffic control and garbage collection at the field mm-hmm. we had our MHA Paul Din there we had counselors from the town of Paradise there to do metal presentations I mean you could feel the excitement it was like for me I felt like it was almost like a mini regatta before the regatta this week so uh, and I also like to shout out to our sponsors North Atlantic and Paradise Studio for, for their commitment to the, to Paradise Soccer and everything else so yeah. it was really well you know it went really well we're, we're really proud of what we've accomplished over the last four days and only hope to grow it and make it even bigger and i gotta agree with you a thousand percent you the volunteers the sponsors these things don't happen without them before i let you go laurie uh any thoughts on that heartbreaking loss this morning to uh, australia i was up this morning watching that and i was like at the nine minute mark you know it was, sim- it was similar to the the arlen game of course where they had the first goal and i was like oh my god we had an uphill battle but then i just felt oh no two three yeah, it's a heartbreaker for sure. And, uh, you know, I was hoping then Nigeria maybe at some point could pull it out and we'd have some uh, chance that they, they could do, uh, Ireland could beat them. But, no, it didn't happen. 
Oh, well, we still have some wonderful athletes, great role models on that team, and they've been so good at showcasing soccer and and encouraging not just girls but boys, everybody to play. So congratulations on the sun splash, and I hope it's all sun and no more splash for the rest of the summer in paradise. Thank you, Lori. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. All right. uh, Lori King from the sun splash tournament. Time for a break here on VOCM. Back with more beer calls shortly. All right, welcome back. Going to try and get two calls in here before the 11.30 news. And then, of course, we have uh, about 25 minutes after that for more calls. Now, just before I take this call, just need to state the first, the, the next caller wants to talk about the, uh, the Memorial President's salary. I am a volunteer member of the Board of Regents, so I can't speak specifically to this issue because of the fiduciary responsibilities that I have, but I can certainly listen to this person's opinion and maybe talk in general terms about it. All right, go ahead, line two. You want to talk about the president's salary at Memorial. Go ahead. Well, congratulations, Tim. It's good to have a fresh new voice at that level. It's been too long having the administrative level making all the decisions. Well, I think the main point is the most important people at MUN are the students and the professors. Mm -hmm. And I think this needs to be shown more clearly by the amount of money that is being distributed uh, to the president and all the vice presidents. Number one, many of us, this is just not my opinion, many of us feel that the president earns far too much money and that there are too many vice presidents doing too little and that a lot of that money should go to the professors who are not either, either they're not even getting paid or their pay is very small because of their particular position and that the students are having to pay so much more and that is not fair when you look at who's important at MAN. It's the students and the professors. It's not the president and the vice presidents. So I think I am not just one voice. I represent many, many voices who have felt like this for a long time and not just the next president, which is looking, you're looking for the next president. It's regarding all the presidents in the past. I think uh, that is something very serious, and I hope that you make this point. Can I ask you a question? This is a general one, because this is, again, not speaking to the specific circumstances. And I, I would agree with you that the, you know, ultimately the students um, and the people who teach them and the other staff members that are there all need to be properly uh, properly compensated and paid for in the well, case of those. I would say those. from the professors all the way down, they're the ones okay. who are getting the short end of the stick, in our opinion. Um, on on, a, on a, a president's salary in general, all, all I know uh, and all I've seen is that pre- normally you pay a salary commensurate with the person's experience and their history, but also with the competitive market. So when, you're, when you see that the marketplace is paying the salaries that it are paying, what are you hoping a MUN president will look at in terms of compensation, given that you know their peers in other universities are being paid significantly well? So that's why often you have salaries at the at the range that they're offered. And what is your question? My my question is, given the marketplace is competitive, how reasonable is it to expect to get a president at a salary that isn't, say, competitive with Dow or okay. St. Mary's or a similar institution? I have heard that argument for ages about all kinds of jobs. Okay. And I think at this point, at this 
province at this university, we can afford to be imaginative and sensible. And that's why I think, okay, if I were really running for president, I would have to take it all in in my mind to what I would want. But I'm just speaking for all the people who represent the professors and the students. And yes, it might, some people might look around and see what other people were getting, but too bad, tough. What we need to do is what is fair and smart for the students and the professors and all those below them at this university in this province. That's number one. Last question for you, and thank you. I appreciate your comments on a whole number of levels. What what do you hope to see Memorial looking like in 10 years from now, given the recent circumstances, the current place, your particular views? What do you want to see from Memorial, and what do you think it should look like in a decade from now? Well, I think it should look like much like it does now as far as the quality of education. I think the various departments are very, very well taught and well researched. What I don't see is the fairness of the pay, which I've discussed, and I also mm-hmm. think the actual buildings need some repair. Uh, the The tunnels have holes in the roof where there are pots of water catching the rainwater. And and these things like that are, are very important to people walking through those hallways, which is a good idea. So what it would look like would have to do with the quality of the professors being chosen and what they are paid, and the same for what the students are having to be paying for their hall for their education, as well as the buildings that they are studying in, that they are sensible buildings where the students can learn and the teachers can teach. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your perspective on uh, on this and uh, hope to hear more from you. Thank you very much well, for the call. Well, do not be shy in your new role. <laughs> Don't be shy and put yourself down. Speak up. Well, I, I'm not known for being shy, but I do like to listen to and learn, and I'm still doing a lot of that. Thank you very much for your call. You're welcome. Bye. Take care. All right. Uh, Dave, on line one, you got a question about the boathouse during the regatta. What is it, my friend? Yes, uh, Tim, I'm not going to keep you long. Uh, I think it's the biggest disappointment ever to go down to the regatta and have the boathouse area and the wharf fenced off for regatta day. It was the most pivotal point of the regatta to meet the crews, to meet all friends. I am a senior, and Mm -hmm. it was the place that old oarsmen met. We talked about all times. You might not see them till next regatta day. And, you know, like... uh, there's no, it has taken the hype away. Like you could stand around the rail, cheer your crews on when they went out, and the same way when they came in. And like last year, I know there was a grandmother uh-huh. and her granddaughter rode for the first time, and she couldn't get a picture of him. She had to take a picture through a wire fence. Now, is that a positive thing for the regatta? So when did that start to happen, Dave? Because I remember, oh, God, now that's 20-odd years ago. I haven't been to the regatta. I haven't actually taken my son yet because we're not there usually when, when, when the regatta is happening. But when did, they, when did they start fencing off that area? Because you used to be, to your point, used to be able to go down there. When did that happen, the fencing? Last year was the first year. Okay. And I questioned one of the committee members, and what was the purpose? Why? 
he said it was for the safety of the crews. Now, have you ever heard of any crew or crew member being assaulted or any violence whatsoever around the borders? It's, like I said, it, it was the regatta. I mean, I'm going to the regatta since I was five years old with my father, and he met his buddies there, and right now, like, we went there last year, and, you know, like, no, we couldn't get in there. And then, mm. so you don't get to see... You don't get to see the same people at all. Yeah, I, I remember my mother, when she ran the SPCA, they used to have a booth over on that side of the lake. And the cool thing was just what you're talking about. You'd see people do their races. They'd come out, their family, their friends would greet them. There was a you know, a natural buzz that was happening around there that made it all very special. I mean, the regatta committee, as you were alluding to, may have good reasons for all of this. We're going to talk to them either tomorrow or Patty will talk to them on, on Wednesday and uh, see if we can pose that question. Uh, anything else you want to quickly add, what Dave, before we go? To break it's like you just said it took the buzz right out of in in my opinion it took yeah. the buzz right out of the races it really really did like it's it's a it's a dead area now because the crews just come out there's no one there to get in the boat and row. now a lot of people they see the boats go up and down the pound but it's not the same as being in the middle of it yeah, you see the faces, you see the hugs, the cheering, you see the faces of disappointment of those who came so close and didn't get it. It makes, it makes it real. And it also, for me, as somebody who's competed in different sports, you just have such an appreciation for, you know, this is a one event and done kind of thing, uh, what they put into it. But we'll try and get some information. Thanks for the call, Dave. Yeah, well, Tim, you, you struck the nail right on the head. That's exactly my feelings. Okay. Thank you for calling. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. Time for our 1130 News. Back after that. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. Last, what, 23 minutes. So give us a call if you like. But right now we're going to go to a caller. We have Harold Williams on the line. Harold, are you there? Yes, sir. How are you today? I, I'm generally okay. How about you? Yes. I guess you have a story you'd like to share. Yes, me, uh, you know, I feel a little bit sad today. You know, I... Uh, <laughs> I spent 42 years in addiction. I, I grew up on Shea Heights and went away to Ontario, tried to make a new life and come out of my addiction. And, you know, and uh, I just felt four years ago, God just telling me, Harold, quit your work and go back to Newfoundland. You sold lots of drugs down there. You hurt a lot of people. Go help the people that are dying, the children. And the other day, I used to go down Water Street, do a little bit of... A lot of people know me. The kids in school know me as a TikTok man. I talk about drugs and the dangers of fentanyl and crystal meth. I've been talking about it since COVID, that there's going to be a lot of overdoses on this crystal meth and fentanyl because it's in nearly all the street drugs today. And when I was down George Street the other night and I heard about that young man dying and thinking about him lying on the back of a club just you know passed on to another world and it just hit my heart and it's sadly we're going to see a lot of more of it because 
And I know sometimes the government, everybody's hands are tied with doing the right thing and they don't know really what to do. I understand. But I think, you know, I'd like to sit down personally with someone in the government one day. I've been reaching out to them a lot and... uh, you know, because I get stories from everybody that's struggling in drug addiction and using. I know drug dealers. I know it all. And I know what's happening. And we can curb this if we really come together as a community and not thinking one person can figure this all out. There's a way to love these people because... Harold, can I pick up on that? Can I pick up on that point? Come on. Well, first of all, thank you for calling and and thank you for for sharing. And I think a few points, actually. Explain to people how addiction isn't simply about saying, yeah, I can't, I'll do it today, but I won't do it tomorrow. Explain the illness aspect of addiction, if you can, and why it's just not as simple as a yes one day and a no the next day. Okay. Because from the first year of my addiction, when I was young, 17, I knew there's something wrong here, and this is going to lead me to prison, institutions, and death. Mm. But for that 40 years, I just couldn't get it. Because you hear people say it's a sickness, and everybody's entitled to say that. But addiction is a very, very, very serious disease of the mind. Mm-hmm. And when it takes control of the mind, there's nothing else matters, only getting high, even though you know when you're going to look for them drugs in the morning, you know they're going to do no good for your life and you wish you wouldn't do it. But uh, the mind takes over and it sends you to get that drug and then you're on a spiral of like a hamster on a wheel, chasing, 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 trying to get something that will solve all the problems that are happening inside and set you free. But drug addiction is just a hamster wheel. You just keep running and running and running and you can't find no serenity. So you think, this is it. This is where I'm going to die. This is where I'm going to stay forever, or I'm not worthy. People are judging me. I'm sad. And a lot of people don't understand we need more love for the addict or Newfoundland. Even and it, I go Canada, let alone we are headed for something that is never going to be able to repair if we don't start now. It's a disease of the mind. We need more love. We need some solid programs where there's repercussions and everything. If you're not going to listen, because you know, in my heart I feel it because I get twenty messages every night. Every day I get a message: someone is dead. Harold, someone overdosed. I didn't believe you, but it seems to be true. It was fair Harold, enough. It's, uh, yeah. And that it has to be terrible to get those messages. I mean, it, uh, look, you're you're so on to something here about the 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 love and healing aspect of it. And yeah. I, from a political perspective, I often come from the conservative side of the fence. And conservatives, I think, go at yeah. this wrongly. Often, they it's always about law enforcement. And yes, there's aspects of this that do involve law enforcement, particularly as it relates yeah. to dealers and and cutting off. Yeah supply but there's a whole yeah. treatment and healing process talk about why the love or the positivity matters so much to people who are trying to overcome addiction can you say that question again once more why, why does positivity matter so much and love okay. why, why, why does it help people who are fighting addiction 
Okay. I uh, I had a couple of studies in my house. I started one uh, two years ago in my house every Wednesday. And uh, I had another one on Monday nights now. I got that about six months because there's so many people coming. And when they come in my home, they all, the first thing they always say at the end of a meeting, I have different people here with me, um, and they always say, Harold, I feel so much love in your house. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't judge me. And uh, it's this positivity reinforces that they could have a positive future. When right. people always told me, you know, Harold, you could, you, you're a good guy and you could do so much good for the world if you're clean and sober. And people start reinforcing in me that wasn't enforced in me that I was a good person. And, you know, we all just feel we need drugs to fit in the world and it takes away all our problems. But if we give them reinforcement, positivity, I take people fishing that never fished in their lives. I take them for drives. I take them to church. I take them to recovery meetings. And they always say, Harold, I never been loved this much in my life. And I'm after seeing so many people. Like, you know, that we're in addictions 30 years, they never do it. And whatever happens, they come to hang around with the positivity, they get positive, and they find a purpose, and they live a life clean and free. Just before I let you go, um, you, you alluded to it in your first comments, and I want you to end and we'll give you about a minute and a half. I'm sorry, we okay. only have short time. It's radio, as you know. That's but cool. And that is, so what what can we all do better or what is the approach we need to take particularly in Newfoundland and Labrador to make a difference here which is very hard we all need to come into agreement that these people are all important no matter how they're down and out they're very important people and they could make and become real productive members of society and make a difference in living for every living child that's going to be born in the future. Because I find I always, in my life, discussion and with addicts, in prison, everywhere I went, the addicts are some of the most beautiful, compassionate people around that are willing to serve society instead of being served if they can only get the right direction to walk to and away from addiction. Well said. And, and thank you. I, as, as I started the show and as you alluded to, it's so sad. Yep. Uh, and, and it's not the only story of it, but we're focusing on Ben Oliveiro, the young man who died. And uh, it's just awful. But thank you for, for sharing and trying to help people understand. And, uh, and that's so essential to what we need to be doing now. Sorry, you want to say one last thing? Yes, one last thing. Anybody in St. John's or Newfoundland or anywhere listening to this, my name is Harold Williams on Facebook. You can reach out reach out to me if you're suffering. I'll make some suggestions and it could just send you into a peace that surpasses all understanding and God bless everybody. All right. Thank you, Harold. Thank Good you luck on your, your own time. healing journey because we're all still trying to heal. It never ends. Appreciate it's your call. Never any story. God bless her. Take care. All right, very moving call. Uh want to hear from you particularly on this issue we've got a few minutes left if you uh, want to give us a ring but time for our last break now and back with the final portion of vocm's open line after that all right we've got two callers there we're going to try and get them both in starting with john who i believe wanted to respond to some of the things harold said good morning john 
Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. What what uh, what did you take away from Harold's comments? Well, first of all, a big shout out to Harold Williams because I tell you, he's doing a lot of good work. Uh, Harold is somebody that I've been aware of for about 35 years when I used to work on George Street. And I told Harold that uh, 30 years ago, I would I would see him on the street. I would walk to the other side. And now I'm really proud to, to call him a friend. He's doing fantastic work. But I want to talk about the addictions issue. Please. Now, we all know. Sorry. I said, please go ahead. Oh, yeah. Um, we all know how addiction works. You know, we all know how, you know, it affects the brain and, and the cravings and whatnot. But there was an interesting experiment done in the 70s by uh, a Dr. Bruce Alexander, and he placed rats in an empty cage, and they were offered two bottles of water. One was just straight water. The other one was uh, laced with cocaine and heroin. Mm-hmm. And 100% of the time, the, the rats would go to the cocaine uh, or, or heroin-laced water, and they would uh, keep drinking it until they overdosed and died. So he re- repeated this experiment over and over. But he decided, he said, what would happen if, you know, if they changed the, the environment? So he created what's called a rat park, and he put the rats in with other rats. Okay. They were free to roam. They had lots of food. They, they were free to you know, play with each other. They were mating. They, all the things you know, normal society would, uh, would have. You know? So he found that nearly all the rats chose the straight water but a few that it chose the cocaine-infested water only went there in- intermittently, and none of them overdosed. So I think that part of the addiction, Harold said, is uh, you know getting onto what Harold said about the uh, about finding love and stuff. I think a lot of times, uh, if people had good environments growing up, they yeah. had good community, they had uh, support, then this problem would probably go away. Yeah, I don't know if it go away, but I, I think it's so true. I mean, I, I think I've spoken about, I mean, I was very fortunate. I, I had some struggles with, with alcohol, mental health, and wellness. I have an addictive-type personality, which I transferred from all of that into running and other things, which many uh-huh. people do. And I credit my environment with making sure that I would get on a, the, the, the straight and narrow, so to speak, loving parents who were understanding, who worked through the problems with me. But not every Everybody has that. You're you're so right, John. No, how do we? Does. How do we? I I don't know. I was listening to Harold. I'm listening to you. I, I mean, people don't often choose where they're born or how they grow up with. So how do we as society work to create a better environment so people have a better chance? Well, it has to start with the parents. I mean, parents have to be educated. I mean, unfortunately, I know of one young man who ha- has overdosed and passed away. But I personally witnessed his mother locking him out of the house because he came home too late and he had to sleep out in the backyard, you know, at 14, 13, 14 years old. I mean, this kind of behavior, uh, you know, how would a 13 or 14 year old react to being locked out of his own home by his mother? You know, yeah, and that's the old school, right, John? I mean, you and I sound—I I think we're of a, of a similar age. I used to work on George Street too as a bouncer yeah. down there, so saw a lot of the Me same too. things. And it was the hard discipline of that of that era. Like, if your child is is an alcoholic and he disobeys you, and and people thought it was the right thing to do. I'm not judging people at the time. They yeah. you keep you kick them out of the house, and that will make them self reliant. But that isn't usually what happens. Well. You know, maybe it's not what usually what happens, but I mean, you know, the young man that I know has now passed away from a drug overdose. 
Yeah. Could it have been something in his family? Could it have been, yep. you know, rejection at school? Could it, you know, what, what, you could know. Could have been multiple factors. It could right? have been multiple factors. But society as a whole needs to understand what this, what the addiction is about, what are the causes. And like Carol said, we need, you know, we need to love these people. We need to help these people. We need to go out of our way to get them help, not ignore them. Yeah, I, and, and look, there's a lot of, unfortunately, we're learning a lot um, based on what's happening in Vancouver and, and on the east side out there and the, 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 the struggles we're experiencing in Newfoundland are tenfold on steroids in, in oh, yeah. Vancouver. No, 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 no less serious. I'm not meaning to diminish what's happening at home, but now there's a lot of research that's being done about how you treat all of this, uh, people's addictions and supply and safe supply and how you wean them off all of, if you can wean them off of, of, the, of the addictive drugs that they have, we have to look at all of that. Any quick last comments, John, because I need to get to, to Daryl before we finish the show uh no i just want to just you know point out like i said the environmental factors and uh it was just a message to harold williams to keep doing what you're doing and uh if i find some spare time i'm probably going to have to come down and help him out a bit all right well you're you're a good person for calling and and uh, and, uh, and doing that thank you john for the call today all right thank you take Bye-bye. care all right um last caller of the day daryl you're in gander i think or you want to talk about a housing issue in gander uh, no, yeah, I was going to talk about the housing uh, shortage in the province, and I okay. heard this lady talking about on a, another uh, program uh, here in Newfoundland Labrador. They got Newfoundland Labrador Housing Cooperative, and they're saying this could be a remedy to the shortages. Uh, now, there's supposed to be money coming from the federal government, channeled to the provincial government, but I think the problem they're having right now is the provincial government and the legislation and how to get these housings in all municipalities here in Newfoundland Labrador. And I think it was a great incentive. I was listening to her, and it made total sense, like, that could reduce the person's cost of living, like, say, paying, say, $2,000 rent. You could probably pay based on your salary, whatever, probably, say, $600 a month plus. And so I'm hoping that if anyone from the Newfoundland Labrador government, government is listening, that uh, take a look at this. And I, I was listening to her and it made total sense. So I just thought I'd bring this uh, to your attention, Tim. I think this is of very great importance. And not only that, we got to look at not only for people locally, but we're bringing people into the province as well. And as you know, there is a housing crunch. So I, 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 it made total sense what she said. And this could be a good remedy to the housing problem. Yeah, it's, look, I think there's a lot of well-meaning people out there, and certainly there's going to be a lot of money flowing through. Um, the challenge, and that's there's challenges in everything, of course, is to get the three levels of government, wherever the three levels, regardless of province, to work together, to find the contractors, to build it, to create the right policies. But uh, Lord knows um, the, the people are screaming out for housing housing remedies. I will try and find that, uh, that interview and have a, a listen to it. Thank you for bringing that to my attention daryl yeah and uh, was on another uh, show That's or it. something like that I, uh, but uh, i just thought i'd bring that to you, uh, your attention uh, because i remember there uh, I'll, I'll make it brief last friday i think your second last caller I think he called in, and they're having an issue with housing, yeah. and he had a couple kids. So that's just yeah, that's right, that gentleman, yeah. right there. Yeah, I, and yeah, that yeah. one stuck in my mind vividly. Uh, it was, it was very sad, and I, I hope, I wish him all the best. And I really hope it really works out for him. But so that's just another good example there. But uh, 
But yeah, so uh, hopefully that the government is listening to this phone call, and, and hopefully that they will get in contact with Newfoundland Labrador uh, uh, Association of uh, Cooperatives and, and work with them, and let's get this problem rectified. Here, here. All right, Daryl. Thank you for the call. Thank you for listening. Appreciate and, it. And not a problem, Tim. And congratulations on your appointment with uh, Memorial University uh, Board of Regents, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I appreciate well, that. Well, congratulations. I'm glad to hear that. I uh, wish you all the best with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's an important one. I hope to do my best. Thank you very much, Daryl. Oh, yeah. No problem. Thank you for your time, Tim, and all the best to you and your listening audience. Okay. Take care. All right, that is the show for today. What a show it has. It has been a ton of important discussions, um, particularly on addiction. Tomorrow, we're going to have Dr. Janine Hubbard, and we'll dive into understanding more what addiction is and how we can help people who struggle with addiction and what we maybe can do better, both individually and collectively, to address uh, address that. I thank Harold and, and everybody else who called today uh, around all of that. Um, tomorrow, also, we're going to have Jagmeet Singh. We're going to have Tony Wakeham. We're going to have Dr. Adrian Peters to talk about crime in the province and, and, and many more calls. I just want to say uh, one more time, um, thinking of the Oliveiro family, thinking of young Ben Oliveiro, if you do anything today, spare a few minutes to think about that. Think about what he went through and the better place his mom hopes and prays that he's in now and think about the people you know who are struggling with addiction and think about what you can do to help them or uh, encourage them to get help uh, nobody is worth losing over addiction and thank you to my friend dave williams for guiding us today look forward to talking to you tomorrow for now i'm tim powers back with you tomorrow